Hi, my name is Chris Brennan, and you're listening to the Astrology Podcast. This is episode 266, and I'm recording it on Wednesday, July 29th, 2020, starting at 10.04 a.m. in Denver, Colorado. Joining me today is astrologer Carol Taylor, and we're going to be talking about the subject of aspect patterns or birth chart patterns in the natal chart. Uh, so hey, Carol, thanks for joining me today. Uh, thank you, Chris. Thank you for inviting me. I'm delighted to be here. Yeah, I'm really happy that we could have this discussion today um, because I just a few months ago, part of the genesis of this discussion is that I was in a bookstore and I came across this new book that I had never seen before, which was a big sort of comprehensive introduction to astrology book. And it was actually your book, and I was really impressed by it. And it's quickly become my new favorite intro to astrology book to recommend to people. So I wanted to have you on the show today to talk. Uh, a little bit about the book, to talk a little bit about your background in astrology, and then eventually to talk about a specific topic of aspect patterns, which you have a chapter on in the book. Uh, does that sound good to you? That sounds wonderful. Okay, excellent. So um, let's start and by just introducing you to my audience. So could you tell me a little bit about your your background in astrology? Mm, sure, yes. I guess it's always been there. I think that's probably the same for a lot of people. Um, I was aware of astrology from a very early age. It wasn't really on my radar, though, until about the mid-90s, um, so a bit after the Saturn return, you know, the way that goes. And mm. uh, so I suddenly astrology was just there, and I decided to study it um, and very quickly got caught up in it. And actually, you know, in, in light of the topic that we're talking about, um, aspects and aspect patterns, the whole um, harmonic thing, um, the way that I came into astrology in the mid-90s, the way that I really started to recognize it as something powerful, uh, was through music and mm. through thinking about uh, musical harmony. I was learning to play the guitar. I'd done a lot of singing in my uh, younger years. I went to music college and so on. So I was really into the whole sort of harmonic thing. And, um, and I discovered astrology and I discovered the Faculty of Astrological Studies. I discovered that they had a course in uh, harmonics. And so I thought I really have to, I didn't know anything about it, but I just really needed to study it. So I did the faculty's diploma. That took me about five years, a professional diploma. Very proud to have got that. And so then and that was in 2000, the, I gained that. And, and that's with uh, the, the Faculty of Astrological Studies? That's right, the Faculty of Astrological Studies. So that's so um, the school in the UK, mm -hmm. um, based in the UK, but students all over the world. It's been going since 1948. Um, so it's the grand old lady of astrological schools. Yeah, um, it's, it seems like yeah. one of the main and one of the most well-regarded astrological schools, um, not just in the UK, but it also offers classes online. So, so pretty much around the world at this point, I hear of students who get their diploma from the faculty. Yes, absolutely. So uh, it was actually me that started the online classes in 2018. Oh, wow. um, we already had a distance learning program by email, and we had classes in London. And of course, as the summer school that we have every year in oh. Oxford. Um, but I really thought that the faculty needed to do online classes. So we have this program of online classes and it's, you know, gone stratospheric really. We started with one very small class and then it's gone up to, I think there's something like 10 running now. So huge, wow. huge thing. Yeah, that's amazing. So you, you spent five years studying at the faculty initially and you got your diploma there and then eventually you became a, a tutor at the faculty. 
Uh, yes, that's right. So when I got my diploma in 2000, um, I was invited onto council and um, I took over from Sue Tompkins running the London classes and the summer school. And I became vice president, then president, and I became the director of studies. So I've done a lot of different things at the faculty. And um, so I've had a sort of 20-year, well, 25-year relationship with the faculty. So that's quite, it's been quite a big part of my astrological life. Um, yeah. I'm a, so still they, a tutor they, there. Um, that gave you a lot of experience then teaching astrology and, and figuring out maybe what new students need to know or how people learn astrology best, perhaps? Absolutely. Um, I've taught probably hundreds, maybe thousands of students um, over the years, over that 20 years. And of course, the faculty is always, you know, we have, uh, we have a very comprehensive program of study. Um, and it's really about taking people from beginner stage and introducing the subject and then taking people right the way through to professional uh, practitioner. So I'm involved at all stages of that process. Um, and that was very much my experience of, of learning astrology was I always knew right from the start of landing into it, harmonics aside, that I wanted to be a, a professional practitioner. So actually a lot of the, um, uh, the training work and the work outside of the faculty that I've done has been, uh, has been about that. So of course, alongside my faculty career, I've had my own astrological practice for 20 years. Um, I have clients all over the world. That's kind of thriving. Particularly in these times, everybody wants to see an astrologer, right? Um, um, and you also um, have uh, other degrees in astrological studies. You went back and did an MA program at one point, right? That's right. Yes, um, in two thousand and fourteen, I did the MA in Myth Cosmology and the Sacred at uh, Canterbury Christchurch University. So that's the program. It's sadly just closed. Uh, they're just seeing the last students through. Um, but that was the MA that um, Angela Voss and Jeffrey Cornelius set up um, at Canterbury, and it was the most brilliant experience. It was uh, it was transformative. It was designed to be transformative learning, um, and it was it was it was in some ways tangential to astrology. So astrology was a small part of what we studied. Um, the history of it, the philosophy of it, uh, astrology is divination, as you would expect with Jeffrey. But it made me see in a different way, I think, um, and it, it it brought into play um, something which had been there for a long time, but it was the idea of getting out of the literal and thinking much more from an imaginative perspective. And it's changed the way that I practice, um, much more on the divinatory side. I think astrology has, um, there is a strongly oracular element to it. Mm. Um, it's made me appreciate the work of Jung in much more depth, Hillman. Um, it's made me think uh, about astrology as an imaginative art. Um, so it's really changed my astrology. So I gained get a distinction in that in that, and that sort of started. Uh, always been quite academic, I suppose, on the side, and that started an interest in academia. And okay. um, I now teach from 2018. I've been teaching on the Sophia MA at the University of Wales, Trinity St. David. So that's the MA that Nick Campion uh, set up. And, okay, so uh, that's, yeah, a, so that's a program. You said the, the other program, unfortunately, is closed down, but the, the other Nick Campion's program is one that's still available if somebody wanted to pursue uh, studies in an academic setting loosely related to astrology? Absolutely. It's very much focused on astrology. 
Uh, it's called cultural astronomy and astrology. So it's looking at um, uh, expressions and uses of the sky in culture. A large part of that is astrology. Of course, there's the other side of it, which is skyscape archaeology, uh, sacred geography. So there are different levels on which they study. Um, I'm involved very much on the astrological side. So I teach on the sky and psyche module. And we look at the, at the relationship between sky and psyche. We look at um, the Neoplatonist Plato, the Neoplatonists, Marsilio Ficino, and then into the 20th century with Jung, um, Rudyard, Liz Green, and so on. Um, I also teach on the research module. So I'm quite okay. heavily embedded there really now and uh, enjoying it so much. Great. Um, well, that makes sense. You have an entire career of, of teaching, and I, and I love how you started that Essentially, you started your astrological career, got kicked off with your Saturn return. Do you share your your birth chart, or is your birth chart um, is your birth data public? Um, no, it's not. It's fine if it's uh, not. Okay. I'm not sure I'm that famous. To have, okay. I don't have my own Wikipedia page. Um, not yet. Do you want me to say my my data? Well, uh, well, I always ask ahead of time because it's okay if a person, some people don't feel comfortable sharing it. If you do, did feel comfortable, then you know people are always interested just in terms of biographical, you know, getting to know a person. I'm absolutely fine with it. Um, I was born on the 22nd of June, 1963, at 3:48 in the morning in London. So I have 14 degrees of Gemini rising. Okay. Um, and what is? I just realized because I usually use whole sign houses, but what's your preferred system of house division? Oh, I'm an equal house girl. Equal houses. Okay, equal let me um, switch it to that then. The second oldest system, I believe. Yeah, um, at least. So let me put uh, equal houses on. Okay, here you go. So you have, uh, so it's it's not showing the degrees, but you said you have fifteen degrees of Gemini rising. Yes, it's fourteen oh eight, I think. Yeah. Okay, and Mercury in Gemini in the first or in the twelfth house, close to the somewhat close to the ascendant, along with Venus in Gemini also, and the Sun in Gemini and the Moon in Cancer. Great. Okay, so you have you have Saturn in Aquarius. So your that was part of your Saturn return was that Saturn in the ninth house. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. It uh, took me back to study days when I was young and the thrill of learning. I mean, there's, I think, you know, if it wasn't me that you were looking at, this was a client. I think one of the themes that you discover in this chart very quickly is the idea of uh, learning, lifelong learning. Um, that's been very important to me. Mm. Um, and I suppose Saturn was all about really consolidating it. Um, and Saturn in Aquarius, you know, what I wanted from astrology and I, what I think a lot of people get from it, um, well, particularly this was for me, um, I wanted a subject that brought together all the things I was interested in. Um, I was interested in mythology, I was interested in psychology, uh, philosophy, uh, history, um, I was interested in, in uh, the Id and healing, and uh, I spent five years as a reflexologist working uh, with uh, clients with immune-related illnesses, um, so what I wanted really was uh, was a subject that would bring together all of those things, that would somehow be holistic and integrative, and of course that's astrology. Um, so it fulfilled a lot of functions, but it was also it also it made sense of my life. 
I think. Mm. And I hear that with students. They say that all the time. It made sense of my life. It's made sense of uh, all the, dif- the disparate strands. Um, it brings everything together. Yeah, um, that idea of it being holistic is really appealing and, and tying together a bunch of things that maybe sometimes seem separate, but then turn out not to be. Absolutely, yes. Um, I mean, certainly for me, in terms of different subject matters, um, uh, astrology is a, it's a very, to me, it's a quintessentially uh, Gemini or mercurial kind of subject. And there is that sort of hermetic inheritance with it. And it's closely allied to things like alchemy. You, see, you hear the, the, there's the presence of Hermes, I think, all the way through astrological history. And of course, Mercury is said to be the original um, ruler of astrology. Um, we now have Uranus um, trying to sort of take over that space. But, um, and of course, there's something to be said for that. I do also think that astrology has a, a deeply Chironian aspect to it. So there's probably a number of tutelary deities that you could choose. Um, but for me, being a Gemini with Mercury on the ascendant, Sun in Gemini in the first, there's something about the, uh, there's something about the complexity of astrology, the different uh, branches of it weaving together, um, all the different ways that you can take it. I mean, you know as well as I do, we can never get bored. You could spend three lifetimes learning astrology, and you'd never, you'd never get bored of it. There'd always yeah. be more things to study. Yeah, that's one of the things I appreciated. Is it doesn't ma- matter how early you are in your studies or how long you've been studying it, um, everybody is still learning, and you never really stop. There's always something new. To find in astrology, no matter what era you're in in your astrological studies. Yes, I think that's true. Um, being an educator in astrology for twenty years, um, of course, students, of the, because this is about um, dealing with people, to speaking to people, and a lot of the students who come into astrology, they've not done any of that before. Some are trained as psychotherapists and counselors. But many haven't, and they're making this great leap into an unknown space of uh, working with people. So it's hard enough to gain knowledge of the of the technical side of it, and to weave your way through to sort of work your way through. You know, which house system do I use? Which aspects do I use? Which aspect patterns? You know, do I do classical? Do I do Hellenistic? Do I? You know, what about William Lilly? Um, and uh, so it's a it's a it's a very complex subject for students to get their head around. And then on top of that, there's the idea that you have to actually, you know, if you want to to practice as an astrologer, you're working with people. That's a whole different set of skills. Um, so I think, first of all, uh, it is a lifelong study, and we're always putting, we're always doing professional development. All astrologers do that. And I think it's a mistake to think that one ever becomes a master or a mistress of the subject. You don't ever master it. Um, you just learn more. Um, and I think that's, students often say to me, I'm, when they do their, see their first client or in their first sort of year or so of, of seeing clients, you know, the, the sheer terror of doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I always say, well, you only know what you know. And actually coming back to this idea of astrology as an oracular um, practice, a divinatory practice, and I don't mean that in any self-inflationary way at all. Um, I just think that if you are, if you enter into a sacred space in the chart and in the, the, the consulting space, and when you're in that space, something happens. And I don't quite know what it is. Of course, there's, you know, people down the centuries have given different names to it. 
It's an entry into the imaginal on some level and something speaks in the moment. Um, and if you've done your work diligently, then you can sort of, you can enter into that space. So I think for students who are first coming into it and just trying to learn the nuts and bolts and thinking about being, being astrologers, um, you, you work with what you know, you work with what you've got and you don't uh, scare yourself by thinking about all the things that you don't know because actually what you've got is enough for that moment. As long as you do your work diligently, as long as you are, there's a sense of integrity uh, with what you're doing. Yeah, and people, it's funny, students sometimes put off doing consultations, especially the more thoughtful ones. Sometimes it seems like they put it off much longer than they should um, because they think that they need to know everything before they start talking to clients instead of just um, being prepared to share what they do know and being clear you know, what areas maybe they're not as strong on. But that's tricky because half of learning astrology is half of it's probably book learning and just learning the basic concepts and techniques, but then the other half you can only learn once you actually sit down with clients and start reading charts for people. Absolutely. I mean, it's it's a stepping over the threshold really into into when you when you actually start to do it. I remember the first client that I had, and I was terrified. Um, she had a packed seventh house, and uh, of course, she said nothing. I mean, it was the client from well, it wasn't the client from hell exactly, but it was a very diff- tough one for me. Yeah. Um, but she because she had all these planets in the seventh, I thought, well, you know, she'll she'll say a lot. She'll speak. She'll speak to me. Mm. Um, because she wants to interact. And of course, I read it all wrong because actually I became her seventh house. Um, and, uh, and I did all the work. Okay. I did all the work. Um, so it is, yeah, you step over into that space and you, you learn a very great deal just in those first few sessions that, that you do. But I think you, yeah, I, I, in the last, um, 20 years or so, 25 years, there's been a real move, I think, in astrology to professionalize. And I think this is a wonderful thing. You know, we have a professional organization in, in the UK. There's one in the USA, I believe. I'm sure there are in lots of other countries. Um, and, and there is something there about, uh, understanding astrology as a, uh, a consultative art that requires a certain level of, um, uh, commitment and a commitment to one's own professional learning. Um, but I think, yes, you, it's, it's, you just, uh, you have to make your own relationship to astrology. I think uh, it's it's important to do that. It's important to understand your own involvement and to to understand why you're in it. Um, and obviously, when you look at your own birth chart, you discover what kind of astrology you're going to be. Um, you're more on the teaching side, on the research side. Is it consultancy that you're interested in, um, and so on? There's lots of different niches, I think, that people can take within astrology. You don't have to sit down and do client work. You can do all sorts of different things. Yeah, that's one That's one thing I really appreciate about it is how many different areas there are and different ways to be an astrologer so that it's not necessarily one thing, which almost maybe goes back to that whole idea that you mentioned earlier about the mercurial or the hermetic sort of underpinnings of astrology and that ability to cross many thresholds or many boundaries? Yes, um, and it is an integrative art. Um, it draws on lots of different levels of experience. Um, I think life experience is a good thing when you're an astrologer. 
Um, I mean, I do notice that there are a lot of young people coming into astrology now. And I think there's something there about uh, it being a particular time for astrology. There seems to be, yeah, a lot more, a lot, a lot more young people coming in, um, a burgeoning of interest. Um, but I see also a lot of, there's a lot of pop astrology out there. There's a lot of bite-sized stuff on the internet. It's incredibly democratic and it's a, it's a wonderful way into the art. But of course, um, uh, there's, there's a lot more to it than that. So it does require a certain level of commitment if you want to work with clients, I think. And I'm quite surprised at the number of astrologer, professional astrologers that don't seem to go to see an astrologer themselves. Mm. They kind of put that aside when they stop being a student. Um, they don't do supervision. Um, I think those things are very necessary. If you're going to practice, um, I think those things are necessary. So you're always uh, developing a sense of self-awareness. Yeah, definitely. Um, so speaking of that, and speaking of the number, the huge influx of new younger students coming into astrology, something that I have struggled with over the past few years in terms of that is what book or books to recommend to new students of astrology. And so, uh, like I said earlier, I was at a bookstore. It was a Barnes and Noble here in Denver, Colorado. I think it was in December or January, and I was just walking, um, walking across the bookstore, and then I saw this beautiful display of astrology books that somebody put up. It was actually like almost by the children's section, so I'm not sure why they put it there, but it happened to have um, your. Book, which is titled Astrology Using the Wisdom of the Stars in Your Everyday Life. And um, I w- sort of picked it up and started flipping through it, uh, not really knowing what I expected to find. And then I, I was very quickly really impressed by the book. Um, for one, I mean, the initial thing that catches you is just it's a very beautifully Illustrated book. I mean, it's a very beautiful book and very appealing book. Um, but secondarily, it's very comprehensive and it covers um, a lot of different topics and it goes into a fair amount of detail with some of the different topics that it does cover, even though it's doing so in a very broad, it's giving you a broad overview of everything and it, it never gets too dense or too overwhelming. But instead, it sort of tries to touch on on just about everything in in one way or another, and I really appreciated that. Um, so this book was published in in 2018, right? Yes, that's right. Just in okay. time for the Christmas market. Yeah. So, what was the like genesis of this book? When did you start working on it, or how did it come about? Oh um, well, again, it was Sue Tompkins who was one of my tutors at the faculty. We've been sort of friends and colleagues ever since. And kept in touch over the years, and uh, she put my name forward for it. Uh, Darling Kindersley were looking for uh, an author, and um, Sue thought that I would be a, a good one to to choose. Um, and uh, you know, up until that point, I'd, I mean, I'd done a lot of writing of articles. Um, I wrote a lot of the faculty's course material. Being director of studies, I contributed a lot to the to the course material, and I loved the process of writing. But up until that point, the only thing that I'd actually contributed to in a book was uh, there was a, a book by the Faculty of Astrological Studies. They set up their own press. We set up the press um, in 2015, and uh, we produced a book called Journey Through Astrology, and I contributed a chapter to that. So it's 10 chapters 
um, of various uh, um, tutors and uh, so on at the faculty, Melanie Reinhardt, Darby Costello. Um, and that came together as a book looking at uh, the personal journey through astrology. That was the only thing I'd ever published up until that point, and I was co-editor as well. Mm. Um, uh, and so so taking this journey with the Dorling Kindersley book was very interesting, and working with a major publisher was very interesting, and trying to distill everything into 500 words per double-page spread was very interesting, yeah. um, because, of course, astrology is so vast. Um, but it was um, it was a joy to do. Um, it's a very ambitious book in many ways. It's got two parts. Um, so the first part is, you know, so there's a, a general introduction and looking a little bit at the history and philosophy. Then mm-hmm. it takes you through all of the different component parts of the chart, all the nuts and bolts, and then it takes you through how to put that together in a whole chart reading. And then there's a second part, which is using uh, astrology in different life situations. So everything from cradle to grave, really, uh, looking at money and finances, looking at professional life, um, parenthood, marriage, relationships, navigating lots of different situations. So actually, in many ways, it was the culmination of, uh, at that point, I I did the writing mostly in 2017, beginning of 2018. So it was about 18 years that I'd been a professional astrologer and doing teaching. And it was the culmination really of that and all the client work that I'd done. And it just um, flowed very easily. The writing flowed very easily. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. that's very unique that you have the whole first half is the introductory stuff and learning the nuts and bolts of astrology, and there's a little bit about the history and the philosophy, but then how the entire almost second half of the book is, you have it broken up into individual topics. Like If somebody had a question about career, how would you approach that with astrology? And it gives them a little introduction to that. Or if somebody asks about relationships, how would you approach looking at that in the birth chart? And that's a very great idea, especially for an introductory book. You don't usually find that, so it was a really unique approach. I think so. It was quite. Um, it was ambitious of of Dorling Kindersley to do it that way, um, because of course, this was aimed at. It was aimed at people who have maybe some knowledge of astrology, but also people who are complete beginners. Um, it's a layperson's book in many ways. It's a. It's an invitation mm-hmm. in. Um, although I hope it's uh, it's of value to people who already know some astrology, a uh, kind of companion to one's studies. Um, but uh, it's w- what we wanted to do was to make astrology access not only accessible, and but not just the nuts and bolts, not just you know how do you interpret Venus in the tenth house or Mars in the sixth. I wanted to show we wanted to show um, how you can bring all of that together. Because the most difficult part of astrology, of course, is the is integrating, synthesizing everything that you know into a whole chart interpretation. And of course, when you do client work, um, people are interested in all sorts of different um, aspects of their life. They have come with many, many questions. There's always a curveball question, which you're not expecting. Um, so, so I think it's important that astrologers think about these different areas and how you can very quickly get the information that you need from around a chart. Um, so, so it was aimed at that, really. And of course, astrology applies to absolutely every aspect of life. Um, you can apply it to every aspect of life. And I'm, I'm always stunned at how astrological configurations um, describe some of the most mundane, ordinary, literal 
uh, often quite funny manifestations uh, right the way through to the most deeply psychological and often in the same configuration. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. That's one of the funny things about astrology since it does describe our lives and a good portion of our lives are, you know, deals with mundane topics and, and very basic topics. Um, so one of the things about your book is it's very comprehensive and I always, because um, students will often ask, like, what if you had to buy one astrology book, you know, that covers everything? Which one would you recommend? And unfortunately, there's never really a book that covers everything. But it, it, my recommendation used to be Parker's Astrology, although that's you know, it's a very an older book that's been in circulation and reprinted at different points a bunch of times, um, and up until recently, that was my main recommendation. But now your book. Um, sort of became that, and I was just curious to what extent you had that in mind as something you were almost replacing, or something you aspired to to do, or or be just as comprehensive uh, as, or even to exceed. Since to me, like that's one of the things that this book does is it kind of replaces Parker's as like the book. If you have, if you want to buy one book to learn astrology with, well, I'm I'm very flattered. <laughs> Um, I'm not sure I set out to to uh, to sort of knock knock Parker's off the top spot. Um, okay. Parker's had been out for a long time, and it was one of the books that I read when I was a student. It was it was um, yeah, it was it was a hugely fun book. I don't mean that in any sort of superficial sense. It was uh, it, it it's it's a very attractive book. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, in a way, what we wanted to do was something slightly different to that. They didn't want to just do. A rehash of what Parkers was doing, and one of the things that Parkers didn't do was really to bring everything together and look at life situations, and look at how to interpret charts, um, and and you know what happens when you when a person is faced with a particular kind of life situation, how can you use astrology to navigate through that? That was something new. Um, so it was it wasn't designed to replace Parkers. It was really designed to to do something slightly different. Um, to, to provide all the uh, the necessary information, like a sort of encyclopedia of all the different uh, uh, pieces of information that you can gain from a chart, but then to do this intricate and synth- synth- uh, this synth- piece of synthesis. Um, yeah, it, it's given me a taste for writing. And uh, of course, you know, now I've got several books on the go that I'm in the process of writing. Um, well, Good. actually, on aspects and aspect patterns. Uh, so, yeah, watch this space on on that. Good. Um, well, that provides a nice segue into our main topic. Um, although, really quickly, so um, this book, when I came across it in the bookstore, I actually came across two versions of it, and it seems like there's one version that is very big and comprehensive, and that's the one that I I showed already. But they also published. Your publisher also did a shorter version of the book. So the comprehensive version is titled "Astrology: Using the Wisdom of the Stars in Your Everyday Life." But then it seems like they also published a shorter version that's titled "The Secrets of Astrology: A Complete Guide to Sun Signs, Planets, Houses, and More." And that's essentially the same book that contains all of the intro to astrology um, principles and concepts from the first half of the book. But just doesn't go as much, or takes out the section in the second half that deals with addressing or delineating individual topics like career, relationships, or travel, or other things like that. Is that is that right? 
That's right. The Secrets of Astrology is aimed at young people. Um, it, it's, it took the first part of the book, the nuts and bolts side of it, and uh, reworded it uh, okay. to, to, to be aimed at young, at young people. They wanted to aim at around about the age of 10, 12, um, so that that's why it doesn't have the life situations because you know obviously ten year old doesn't have a career or faced with ideas of you know what to do when you become a parent and so on. So right. that's why that was taken out as a sort of well, child well, child that, uh, version for children. Okay, well that's really funny because that's uh, that's actually the version that I found. Like this is the actual picture that I took where I was walking across this bookstore and I, this uh, display in the children's section caught my mind uh, my eye. Um, and that was the first version of the book that I saw. And then a friend of mine texted me 20 minutes later and said, was that you that was sitting in the children's book section looking at astrology books? And I uh, <laughs> laughed and said, yeah. And they said that that was very um, on char- in character for me. But that was how I discovered the other books. So, so basically, um, it, the other one's more geared towards kids, I guess, but it's still the same. It seemed like the same sections of the book so it's not necessarily simplified or dumbed down too much it just isn't as comprehensive that's right yes the idea wasn't to dumb it down um, okay. because you know children are very intelligent they they know what's going on um, sure. and i think there's something very instinctive about astrology you know it's because it's this archetypal this language of symbols um and you know, even at a young age i think and so many of the people i come across so many of the students i come across they say I discovered astrology when I was eight or nine or ten or you know quite young, mm-hmm. um, and there's there's something very instinctive about our connection to astrology. So I think it's a mistake to I think anyway it's a mistake to to speak in sort of baby tones to children. Um, uh, but you do obviously need to take out some of the things that are just not relevant. So that was the idea there. Okay, that makes sense. Um, well, I would definitely recommend if people are trying to make a choice between the two to get the more just go for the more comprehensive one, even if it's a little bit more expensive, just because it contains it's it's worth it because of how much more it contains. Um, and the version that I got even had from Barnes and Noble had some f- like flashcards that it came with at the end for learning planets and signs and houses, which was very useful as well. I don't know if that's in all versions; it was just a little bonus. Um, all right, so why don't we? I think that's a good transition into our topic today. Where at one point in the book, you have a treatment of um, what you call aspect patterns. And I think there, like, there's different names for this. It's like I've heard it as aspect patterns or um, birth chart patterns or planetary patterns. I'm not sure if I'm forgetting any, but it's just a general topic of different um, formations that involve. I think three or more planets in a chart. I think that's how you defined it in the book, right? Uh, yes, I mean, um, astrological listeners here will recognize the idea of aspect patterns. I hope. Um, so, just broadly speaking, yes, uh, three or more planets brought together by aspect um, into a configuration. Well, I was going to say recognized configurations. Of course, there's a number that probably. Um, most astrologers or most most astrologers working in a sort of modern context, um, sort of broadly modern psychological context would recognize. Um, I only deal with a certain number in the book because, of course, there's, you know, there's probably endless numbers of, not quite endless, but uh, numerous patterns that you could, um, that you could 
think about in a chart. And any chart is going to throw up combinations of, you know, Venus connected to the sun, which is also connected to Mars, which is also connected to Jupiter and does that form a pattern. Um, mm. On the internet, I came across um, just a few days ago, uh, some uh, uh, some drawings um, by Michael Erlewin, astrologer, wonderful astrologer, Michael Erlewin. And he's given names to all of these uh, patterns, um, these these aspect patterns. Um, I assume that it was him that gave them the names, and there's you know there's there's quite a few of them. You know, as astrologers, what we're doing when we're looking at charts is describing what we see. We're we're interpreting what we see, but of course, um, most astrologers would probably recognise a certain number of uh, recognisable patterns, like the T square. Grand Cross, the Grand Trine, and so on, um, and that's part. That's certainly part of the uh, the way in which I look at charts. I'm I'm always looking for aspect patterns um, because I'm seeing those as uh, they show something of a complex. They show something of an integration of planetary drives and archetypes coming together into uh, into a. a a pattern of behavior or a pattern of experience which repeats itself again and again in lots of different sets of circumstances in the person's life. Um, and they're dynamic. And there are lots of different uh, uh, ways in which any one pattern might uh, present itself in the course of somebody's life. So I think that's it's a very, it's a dynamic energy. And it's, it's something that I, I was quite surprised, really, in my astrological studies to see that the classical astrologers, traditional astrologers, don't really recognise these patterns um, because I didn't come up through and through that route in my training. Um, I was quite surprised to see that. But yeah, yeah you would you would think uh, aspect patterns seems like more of a recent thing. Like I know one of the earliest authors is Mark Edmund Jones, Absolutely. and I'm not sure is he he's basically like the founder of modern aspect pattern theory for the most part. And I think he defined. Most of the standard ones today, but you're right. It's surprising that there's not um, a lot of discussion of that in ancient astrology. There's a little bit in Indian astrology, like I did notice in the Yavana Jataka in like the second century, that they do have some groupings of different sort of planetary um, standardized patterns that they'll give different names to. But at least in the Western tradition, it's much more of a recent concept. Yes, I think so. I mean, obviously, aspects go way back, and Ptolemy outlines them, Manilius outlines them, mm. um, and we have sort of standard ways of seeing aspects. Um, and then Kepler brought in, I think, the quintile, the biquintile, and the sesquiquadrate, because he was, of course, very interested in harmonics, wasn't interested in the houses, um, wasn't even really interested in the zodiac. Who's was very interested yeah. in harmonic patterns. Um, and, but it really, yeah, absolutely right. I'm not sure that it was, um, Mark Edmund Jones particularly that brought in the idea of these aspect patterns. He has the, um, the chart patterns. Hmm. Um, I'm perhaps not so familiar with Mark Edmund Jones's work on, well, on, on aspect, aspect patterns, but certainly on chart patterns, the locomotive, the bucket and the splay chart and, and so on. So, uh, okay. Distribution of planets around the chart. Do you know who um, the modern, who did introduce, or or who some of the foundational authors are that talk about aspect patterns in particular? Um, Rudyard talks about them. Um, hmm. 
yes, he's, Bourdieu talks about them. He talks about the grand trine. He talks about other patterns. Um, he doesn't talk about all of them, all of the ones that I would be familiar with. Mm-hmm. Um, my instinct, and although I don't actually have any um, uh, evidence for this, but my instinct would say that it was perhaps with the cosmobiologists, with Alfred Witter mm-hmm. and the German school um, at the beginning of the 20th century, um, r- resurrecting the ideas of Kepler and looking at the chart in, in terms of harmonic resonance. Um, right. that really started to bring in the idea of a possibility of a pattern that resonates around the chart. And the idea that Rudyard talked about, the idea of an aspect pattern being um, uh, it, it has to contain planets that, uh, that work around the chart into a, into a sort of, it integrates planets from around the chart. So really, I think Rudyard is the first one who's really talking openly, perhaps, about about that in the 1960s and 70s. Um, there are other, um, I'm trying to think of the other places where I think Carter talks about aspect patterns um, in the Encyclopedia Carter. of Astrology. So what's that, the 30s, 40s? Mm, okay. Um, something right. like that, into the 50s. Um, but I think really some of the um, some of the patterns that I would I had considered when I was uh, training to be quite standard things like the mystic rectangle and the hard rectangle, um, the finger of the world and so on. Uh, I think they're probably fairly recent. Okay. Probably very recent. So um, let's, let's uh, do maybe not an overview, but um, just to touch base or to give a brief overview of some of the ones we'll be touching on today, which are ones that you talked about in your book. Um, One of the ones that's Famous that people often talk about a lot is the Yod um, or Yod uh, aspect pattern, and there's also the T square. Uh, stellium is a sort of aspect pattern. The mystic rectangle, the minor grand trine, the kite, the hard rectangle, and the grand trine, which is one of the most simple and straightforward ones, um, as well as some other minor ones like the finger of the world. Um, so those are all the ones that you have um, that you discuss briefly in your book. Where should we start? Should we start with the stellium as like the uh, as a basic one, or or where do you usually start when you start talking about aspect patterns? I usually leave the stellium till last. I know it's first in oh, really? the book, but okay. I usually leave it till last because um, it isn't. In a way, it isn't really an aspect pattern, um, right. and traditionally, of course, the conjunction isn't an aspect. Mm. Um, because the the planets are not looking at each other, they're not literally not aspecting each other across the chart. Mm. Um, so I usually leave it t- until the end. Um, I suppose I usually start with T squares, but that's probably because I've got one in my own chart. Right. Um, was, so it seems like I'm starting from familiar territory. Well, that was funny because um, that's why I was going to say we have to start from the stellium because I have a stellium in my chart. So maybe maybe we're mm. both biased, um, but. A T square. I mean, we could we could start with a T square. That's certainly one of the most basic ones because it just involves three three planets. So that's you know, in terms of building blocks, is pretty straightforward. Yeah, Sue Tompkins says that um, something like forty five percent of charts have T squares. Mm. Um, I 
don't know whether she did any uh, qualitative research on that, but um, sure, right? Yeah, like a l- large <laughs> uh, it's scale. a fairly it's a fairly um, common aspect pattern. You see it a lot. You see it a lot more than you do a grand cross, for instance. Obviously, because there's only three planets uh, involved there. Um, so, how do we define a t? So, a t square is two planets that are in a close opposition that are both squared simultaneously by a third planet, which is squaring both at the same time. Yeah, that's exactly right. And what kind exactly of orbs right. do you use for this? Is this something that needs to be relatively tight, or what sort of ranges might be involved if, if a new student is wondering? Um, I use I have a set of orbs that I use, which is pretty roughly in tune with the way that I've been taught. Um, mm. Which is uh, it's not the traditional way of looking at orbs. Um, I'm looking at orbs of aspect rather than um, the idea of a planet having an orb around it. Um, so uh, I'm using for the opposition and for the square also. Um, I'm using an eight degree orb. Okay. So there's an allowable orb either side of the exactitude um, of eight degrees. For me, okay. I mean it's not an exact thing. It's a bit like a photograph that comes into and out of focus. Um, but around eight degrees. Okay, and um, additionally, this is a kind of a side note, but I meant to bring it up earlier. So you said you used equal houses, and there's a tradition of using equal houses that's specifically like from the faculty or one of the founders of the faculty, right? Um, yes. Well, the faculty was founded in 1948 in the UK, and at that time in the UK, uh, really equal house was, I think, uh, the one that was the most popular. And it was the one that Margaret Hone used in her textbook of astrology. And, uh, and Margaret Hone was one of the founders, one of the five founders, along with, um, uh, yeah, so fa- there were five founders who, who founded the, the faculty out of the Astrological Lodge of London. Um, and, uh, and so the faculty started to use Equal House. Mm-hmm. And it's become a tradition, really, since then for the faculty to use Equal House. I do okay. sometimes stray into Placidus. Had my chart read in Placidus and Koch and in Equal, um, yeah, yeah. That's just really it's really cool. Um, Placidus is usually such a dominant system in modern astrology, at least in the U.S. Um, and then Holstein has seen a resurgence in the past ten or twenty years. But it's interesting um, that Equal is is so popular because of that lineage in the U.K. and and specifically with the faculty. So I'm always interested in in Learning more about how that works, or how you've integrated it into your practice, and, and things like that. Yes, I mean, I'm of the opinion that um, that all of the house systems are valid; they all work. Mm-hmm. And again, this perhaps comes back to this oracular element that actually, um, when you go to see an astrologer, uh, what you are what you are engaging with, it has a sort of energy trail. Um, it starts with a question, it starts with a seeking, and it ends up in the consulting room um, or online with the astrologer having the chart reading. And therefore, it's the – because it troubled me for a long time that there were lots of different house systems. I think it troubles a lot of astrologers, particularly mm. students. They think, well, which one is the right one? And actually, I don't think it's the right question to ask. The right house system is the one that you're using. And uh, you can trust that what is going to be spoken about that comes from that house system is the thing that needs to be spoken about in that session because you know that you can't get through 
everything that could be said about that person in your 90 minute session, however long your session is. So there is this sort of, uh, yeah, d- divinatory element to it. And you have to trust that what you're using is the right one. Equal House works for me. Um, but I don't discount the others and I work when I look at my own chart, I will, I will look at my own chart in other house systems too. Mm. And I've had some quite extraordinary experiences with my, I had a reading with Melanie Reinhardt once and she used Koch where my third house planets go into the fourth. And we spent the entire session talking about my father, which I was totally not expecting. Mm. Um, but it was the thing that needed to be spoken about at that particular time. And it was the end of a grieving process and allowed that grieving process to take place. So I think it's, as as an astrologer, you have to choose a house system that you think works, that has some sort of, you understand the philosophical and technical underpinning of it, you have the technical basis of it. It speaks to you and you work with it and it's in your toolbox, as it were. Um, so I don't worry too much about, you know, please, miss, why do you use equal house? Right. <laughs> question that everybody always asks because sure, so many sure. people use Placidus. But Placidus yeah. was, um, I think, was popularized very much um, by, has been by the psychological astrologers, by Liz Green, House the Sport House, Richard Eidemann, um, and now Lynn Bell and Melanie Reinhardt, etc. Well, actually, Melanie uses Koch, but so many of them use uh, Placidus. Um, sure. Well, and, and there's not a huge difference if you're, you know, using different quadrant systems and just you know, moving the cut, the intermediate cusps a little bit. That's not like a huge different com- difference compared to jumping to equal houses where the cusps will be much different, or mm-hmm. jumping to whole sign houses where the cusps are much different. Um, yeah, but just quickly for anybody that's not familiar with equal house, and if I can just use your chart again as an example, you just identify the degree of the ascendant, and then you measure thirty degrees forward. Uh, downwards, and that becomes the first house, and then you measure thirty degrees from there, and that becomes the second house, and so on and so forth. Correct? Yeah, that's right. So you end up with an MCIC axis, as you can see in the chart here. My chart here, uh, the MCIC is floating, um, and it can land anywhere between the MC can land anywhere between the twelfth to the seventh house, depending mm. on your latitude, and ditto with the IC anywhere from the first um, through to the sixth. Uh, depending on the latitude and the time that, of the day that you were born. I love that because that's also true of whole sign houses, but it's not something that usually uh, in quadrant houses that's a non that doesn't happen at all. So how do you usually do you end up interpreting that um, in equal houses? Do you still pay attention to the degree of the midheaven and where it falls or what equal house it falls in? Or um, does that not necessarily play any role in equal houses? Uh, no, absolutely, you do. Um, and, you know, we have this, we have all, obviously, there's the fourth, tenth house axis there also. And then mm-hmm. you have the MCIC. And so you have the potential for there being a slightly different thing being said by those two axes. Um, and in my experience, there is something, um, there is something, uh, personal, interior, something quite private about the MCIC axis. So the IC becomes not not so much our um, legacy from the past, which the fourth house very definitely is, our sense of our roots and um, uh, our family roots and our inheritance from our, from our family. Um, 
the the IC becomes this place where that we have to identify. We have somehow during the course of our life have to identify as being the route that we want to come from or the route that we want to put down in order to be in the world as an individual. And I think the MC uh, is is perhaps less about um, uh, fulfilling the uh, expectations of the ancestors or of our family, of our parents, and doing something which is entirely unique to us. So this free-floating MCIC axis is actually quite helpful, uh, I think, in giving us two different places in the chart where we can see um, roots and flowering, home, home and profession, um, if you like. I also like the idea that uh, what the equal house system does is it gives you the nonagesimal. So it gives you the point that's 90 degrees above the horizon, above the ascendant, mm-hmm. um, where the most elevated planet will be. Um, in my chart, which you haven't put in, of course, it's Chiron, the hidden the hidden planet. planet oh. yeah, no, no, that's fine. That's absolutely fine. Um, uh, that's That's my most elevated planet. So the, so the equal it, house system gives you the chance to do that. Uh, and it, it is shows right, right on the nonagesimal point. Also, also, the most elevated point of the zodiac or the ecliptic coincides yeah. with the nonagesimal, uh, yeah. which is the ninety de- degree point relative to the ascendant. Absolutely, absolutely. And I, I've often noticed that uh, you know that is the thing that people know you for the most. Mm-hmm. Um, the MC, and perhaps this is particularly so for me because my MC is in the eighth house. Uh, there's something about the the work of the MC taking place in this much more interior space. Uh, we're reaching for a, a, a sense of our vocation through that, um, and of course it comes through the tenth house too. But that's more the outer, um, the outer manifestation of it, um, the route that we've sort of obviously chosen to take. Um, and it says something about the choice, professional choices that we make as a result of the lineage that we've come from. So it's directly connecting back to the fourth house. Um, so yeah. Okay, I like that. Um, thank you for that. I appreciate it. So, um, all right. So back to the aspect patterns, and back to our our very first aspect pattern, which is the uh, T square, or sometimes known as the T cross. So we're talking about uh, an opposition between two planets and then a third planet coming in and squaring both of them. So I guess that's one of the things that's unique about this right from the start, and this is one of the things that's kind of left out of the ancient textbooks is they'll all interpret these in isolation. So they'll tell you what happens when you have like the Moon square Mars, or they'll tell you what happens when you have Jupiter opposing Saturn in isolation, but they won't tell you what happens if you have um, like Jupiter opposing Saturn and both of them are squaring Mars or what have you, because in any actual chart you have to synthesize together the positions, and that's part of the uniqueness of any birth chart is um, taking all of the different isolated positions into account and then producing a combined delineation. And I guess that's one of the things that aspect patterns are useful for is forcing you to learn how to come up with combined delineations relatively quickly and relatively early? Yes, yes, I think so. Um, I mean, people are endlessly complex, and I think the aspect patterns really do justice to that. I wouldn't want to try and do a chart reading 
without looking at them. Of course, there are some people who don't have the recognized aspect patterns. That doesn't mean to say that their lives aren't complex. Um, but it's a, it's a, you can see each of those aspect patterns. Say taking the T square, for instance. I mean, um, you know, there's the idea of two planets in opposition. Therefore, there's a sense in the person that, uh, uh, there are, there are war, that those are, those are two places in their chart. Those are two places in their life, two different desires or um, uh, uh, drives that have uh, the person themselves finds it difficult to reconcile. The apex planet is uh, somehow trying to mediate between the two. So you can start to see how there's a dynamic with the T-square, which funnels the energy through the apex pattern, through the apex planet. Um, and a lot of, because the square is about, you know, it comes from the number four um, and uh, go all the way back to Pythagoras and the Tetractus, the, the idea of number symbolism. And four is the number of manifestation and being in the real world. So there's a sense of, um, and a two, of course, is about opposition and, and dichotomy and being split into two, into two places, into two, two separate um, senses of identity. And the apex planet in a T-square attempts to bring, attempts to find a resolution to that. And it's a very active seeking of resolution um, because it's funneling two squares, it's funneling the energy through two squares into the apex planet. So there's work involved in it. Um, there's a sense of the T-square being a bit like the hammer on the anvil. It's a bit like being in the heat of the blacksmith's shop, um, trying to trying to craft something. Um, and people who have a T-square in their chart are very often in this constant process of perfecting a set of skills. And it's that apex planet that really drives the action. And it, it's, it's that constant sense of working at it, which, um, which helps to, uh, to resolve the tension and uses, helps to resolve the tension, but also uses the dynamic of the tension, um, of the opposition. I think it's interesting to think about if you have an aspect pattern, this is actually so of aspects too, um, to think about it in terms of what the world was like around you when you were young. Um, and very often when you take, if you go with a client, if I take, go back into childhood years, you can start to see how the person has identified the, uh, the planets in the T-square or in the Grand Cross, particularly with the hard aspect aspect patterns. They've identified those people. They've identified those planets as belonging to people. So they see that in the world around them. So this might, the T-square might suggest, um, you know, if there's a dynamic tension going on in the parents, marriage and relationship, there's a t there's a, an opposition in the child's chart. Um, they, uh, they can see dynamic tension in the world around them. And so they start to project the energy of the planets in opposition onto the two parents. And then maybe the child themselves becomes piggy in the middle, or there's a, a sibling um, that is the that acts out the apex planet. Um, so you start to see, as the child, you start to see this, you start to see that aspect pattern dynamically in the world around you. And then it becomes the reality. I mean, it's obviously your aspect pattern, so it's how you are as a person, um, but it's also reinforced 
in in the in the in the real world around you. So that T square, and it doesn't even have to involve the seventh house or Venus. Um, you can start to see how that's going to be a dynamic in relationships, in professional relationships, in in romantic relationships, in absolutely everything the person does. It's a huge driver. Um, people with a T square tend to be dynamic, always working never letting themselves off the hook. There's always more work to be done. And it's particularly around that apex planet. I've got to get this right. Um, I haven't quite got there yet. Um, the sword isn't quite sharp enough. Yeah, I like that. But there is at least um, the potential for resolution for it in some way. And there's almost a sense of optimism in that way, since the opposition itself can sometimes be more tense or can lead to like a standstill between those two planets. But with the Square, um, perhaps there being some sort of outlet potentially. Absolutely, yes. Um, the if you just have an opposition in the chart, um, it it there's a sense that something doesn't get resolved. There's a feeling, perhaps, that something doesn't get resolved. Although I think also, you know, there's there's something about aspects. Um, all aspects, no matter what kind they are, in a sense, are trying to become a conjunction. They're trying to resolve themselves. Um, an opposition by itself without the T-square, without the apex planet, is trying to resolve itself by finding um, activities or ways of being, um, professional outlets, um, uh, skills, which, uh, which consciously and dynamically and creatively bring together those two opposing sides they the as the idea of going into one side and feeding and being in that place and and taking um uh taking experience from that and then bringing it back into the other side and bringing the experience back to the other side and just oscillating between the two but when you've got a t square you've got this apex planet that's really um yes there can be a sense of resolution briefly i think um you know that was a job well done and then you're off T-square people are, very, are great goal setters. Um, there's always more to be done. Yeah, I like that um, and that idea just because that's something that comes from the idea of hard aspects as well as that tension sometimes leading to um, movement or leading to produ productivity. And I guess um, one of the ways that you interpret this or one of the things that you point out is that if you have a close T-square, part of your access point for interpreting it is understanding the commonality between those planets, and one of the commonalities is that they're all going to have the same um, modality or or quadruplicity in terms of the signs that they're located in, right? Yeah, absolutely. It'll be, I mean, unless it's out of sign, mm -hmm. um, you're going to have a, a cardinal T square, a fixed T square, or a mutable T square, and they all have their their different flavors. The cardinal tends to be the most dynamic. Um, as a sense of being always in constant motion and the fixed t-square i mean fixity is very good at uh staying the course so sort of long long-term goals and projects and there's a sense that the personality is um is is carved out of um experiences of being put into maybe quite high pressure situations um the per a person with a t-square anyway any kind of t-square is is like unlikely to be happy in 
long term in situations where there's a great deal of ease and there's no there's no goals to be set there's no uh there's no things to be achieved um so but f- fixity is is there for the long haul um so there's a great deal of resilience bound up in that it's almost like a war of attrition um you know i'm just going to sit here and wait until uh, the problem has been solved um and the mutable t square you know you just mutability has this sense of setting goals but never really always being taken in lots of different um directions and never really settling on one thing so there can there can sometimes be a sense of dissatisfaction with a mutable t square you want something to be to happen um but you don't quite know how to go about doing it but there's sure. a kind of dancer quality to a mutable t square and i have known people with with a mutable t square who who actually particularly one i know with venus and mars involved who was a dancer who is a dancer um and she makes a virtue out of being light on her feet but being incredibly dynamic at the same time mm-hmm. um i'm going through and i'm trying to find some examples i don't know if you know of any offhand of of t squares i'm just like doing a search through solar fire and one yeah. of the ones um that yeah. came up was i guess uh diana princess diana had a t square involving the moon conjunct the south node opposing uranus uh, and both of them are squaring Venus, which is kind of interesting in fixed signs. Um, I don't know if that's one that you've used before as an example. Um, I haven't. I haven't used Princess Diana's chart for a long time. Um, I was just thinking that she there was a uh, she was on the they played a clip of her on the television the other day in the UK television, mm-hmm. and it was the interview that she did with Martin Bashir where she was talking about. Um, the phrase she used was, there were three people in this marriage, so it was quite crowded, um, talking about Camilla Parker Bowles. That's a, and, that's a great uh, yeah. analogy for a, for a T-square. I mean, absolutely. There's so many different um, uh, levels on which you can interpret that T-square. Mm. And of course, you know, some of them will be incredibly private, and it's difficult to talk about Diana because she was so, yeah, she had astrologers who talked about her. Um uh, and right, shouldn't have. Was, they went to the press, but yeah, they shouldn't that, have. That, that was part of the complicated history of mm-hmm. some things that happened with astrologers and her. That and that and that actually had some repercussions in the commun- in the astrological community at one point, didn't it? Absolutely, yes. So the only the the faculty's diploma, you have to sign a code of ethics, and there are in as far as I uh, know the history, there's only ever been two people who've had their diploma taken away. And they were the two people who went public with their private knowledge of Diana because they were her, they were her astrologers. Um, mm. so, so it's difficult talking about Diana, I think, because, you know, but in the moon Uranus opposition, you see there, um, you see the independent woman in that, in that T square and you see her juggling those roles and particularly bringing in the nodal axis. There's something there about, um, Juggling the roles of 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 mother, and um, but also this incredibly um, beautiful style icon. Um, mm. Maybe one of the ways in which she managed to um, find her place. And Moon Uranus, Moon and Aquarius opposite Uranus. You know, there's something there perhaps about feeling like a stranger in your own home. Um, uh, 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 the search to find a place to rest and to feel uh, comfortable. 
about being different in the way that you think about things or having a slightly different take on life. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe some of the way in which she resolved it was through, well, firstly, through sixth house things. She was obviously involved in a lot of um, service-orientated work. And uh, she was obviously, she was very good at creating relationships. Um, and I was just thinking about when she uh, she was the first person to publicly uh, put her arms around somebody who was dying of AIDS in a hospital. And it was a game changer in terms of uh, uh, attitudes towards um, AIDS and HIV. And so maybe there's something there, but also, you know, uh, styling herself as somebody beautiful, having this incredibly different kind of style. She was unlike in the way she dressed and the way she acted, the way she presented herself as a woman. She was unlike anybody. Mm-hmm. So I think she used that T-square very well. Yeah, that's a really good um, example. And and so it brings up a few points just about aspect patterns in general, one of them being that it's one of the first things that sometimes astrologers go to because it's one of the first things that will catch your eye in a chart, especially if it's very close, if it's within a few degrees. And um, especially if you, I mean, different astrologers have different styles, but if you draw aspect lines in your charts, for example, it just automatically you're going to start seeing these patterns pop out to you, and that's therefore going to draw your eye, and it becomes um, one of the episodes I did last month was first steps in interpreting a chart, mm-hmm. and certainly for for some astrologers, one of the first things that they will notice is if there is an aspect pattern in the chart, just because it kind of draws your attention to it right away as soon as you start looking at a new nativity. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Diana also has a kite in her chart. Um, I think in the in the version that you showed, it's not showing the trine between um, Chiron and Neptune, but she's got okay. her son involved in it there, and also Mercury, and then the two rulers of the chart. Um, actually, is it Scorpio rising? Where? Uh, how are you? Oh no, sorry. Yes, it's a, it's Sagittarius rising. So sorry, yeah, scrub what sorry I just that- said. But there's okay, this me, very powerful no, Mars, yeah. There's very powerful Mars-Pluto conjunction right up at the top there, um, which, you know, I was thinking of her land, her work with landmines. She was, she worked with a landmine charity, and she was very brave. In many ways, she was very brave, and we know that uh, Mars-Pluto has that. Uh, it, it, Mars-Pluto in Virgo is, has a kind of Hephaestus quality, Vulcan, you know, deity. Um, this, the idea of craft, making a craft out of something. Um, mm. but she was incredibly brave, incredibly forthright in her own way. Um, and, you know, the, the kite pattern, which we can come on to, uh, later picking mm. up the idea of the, the grand trine and then this opposition from one of the planets through to an, a, again, an apex. That Mars Pluto is the, di- there's the dynamo really. Of the kite pattern, okay. So, um, she so the has... idea of going into dangerous places um, and overcoming, right? Yes. Yeah, so so she, it's so um, she just to describe it. So she yeah. had for people listening to the audio version, she has the sun at nine degrees of Cancer and it's trine to Neptune at eight degrees of Scorpio, and then both of them are sextile to Pluto at, at six degrees of Virgo, uh, which is also loosely conjunct Mars at one degree of Virgo, and both of those are opposing Chiron at six degrees of 
Pisces, so that creates the the kite pattern in her chart. Yes, that's right. That's right. Got it. Okay. Um, and one of the other things this is bringing up and making me realize, as a just a basic principle, is that when you have a really close aspect pattern, such as a T square, like she has in her chart, that also means that those degrees are going to be really sensitive. So that if you have a major transit or or any transit that hits one of those planets, it's sometimes going to hit all of them at the same time. So that's one of the things, perhaps, just in terms of the theory that makes. Chart patterns really important is that it's aspect it's um, activating multiple aspects at a time. Anytime one of them gets aspected uh, dynamically through some sort of timing technique. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you can't see any of the planets in isolation, um, and it's important to see it as a whole pattern. And sometimes, you know, if it's a slow-moving planet like Neptune or Pluto, the mm. The string of transits can take several years, um, so it becomes, you know, if we see here with uh, Diana's Moon Uranus opposition square to Venus, um, a a transit is going to hit that Uranus first because it's at twenty three degrees of Leo, mm -hmm. and then it's going to hit Venus, which is at twenty four degrees of Taurus, then it's going to hit um, uh, the Moon at twenty five degrees. Of Aquarius, and then it's going to hit the nodal axis at 28. So there's a whole um, there's an, a whole outworking, and all of, of that of that uh, range of the, the the transits to that T square, and you've got to see the whole thing as a complete process. Um, I can't remember any of the times I can't remember her transits at, at sort of key times and whether that T square was um, being activated. But anybody listening who's got a T square. Um, yes, absolutely don't see it in isolation. And sometimes it can take several years. And it's a life-changing experience to have um to have uh, a, a transit that picks up a T-square. Absolutely a life-changing experience. Yeah, I'm imagining, I'm not familiar with her transit history, but I'm imagining if like Saturn came to 24 degrees of Taurus and let's say stationed retrograde around there. Then she would not just be having transiting Saturn conjunct Venus, which would have its own delineation, but also simultaneously she'd be having a transit of transiting Saturn squaring her Moon, which is its own sort of you know important transit, and also transiting Saturn squaring her Uranus. So that's like three transits that even just in isolation all get activated at once except what they're doing is also activating the aspects between them like the moon uranus opposition and the venus uranus square and so on and so forth yeah absolutely absolutely so that um, that almost ties it back to the idea of harmonics that you started with and that you first interested you as your recurring interest in astrology and music is this reminds me of how um like uh, you know, wind chimes, for example, if you have like three chimes and you run uh, something across all three of them, they have different tones depending on you know when you hit them and, and what the order is and, and their length and everything else. And it's kind of like that in a way, except if if it's really close, they're all going to get hit and they're going to resonate in that specific tone um, all sort of at the same time. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, there's that's a wonderful analogy. It's a wonderful metaphor for for uh, for what is happening, and also on another level, 
um, you can see a T-square. You know, Kepler did this whole piece with music and mathematics and aspects. Um, and if you're into harmonics um, as an astrological technique, and of course that's, you know, started to, to really land in, um, I don't really know the history of harmonic charts, I have to confess, but I know that John Addy, um, British astrologer, was uh, working with them. He was coming from this sort of Neoplatonic perspective. Uh, the work of Kepler and so on is very interested in harmonics. And um, then we have uh, the work of David Hamblin and so on working in harmonics. And harmonic charts are very interesting because they're, of course, taking number and uh, take and using that to create a spin-off chart, which resonates to that particular number. Um, but I've noticed with aspect patterns, because they are based in number, so here you have the idea of two and four in the opposition and the squares, two and four. And, and so you can think about the chart as being the song that we sing. And that sounds a bit whimsical, but I don't mean it in a whimsical, whimsical sense. Um, it has this very direct connection to, uh, to musicality, to music, to harmonic, to the harmonic series. Mm. Um, so if you were to take the numbers in the chart, and you you could actually create a song out of it. You could create not only a physical pattern out of it, but also a song out of it. Um, and a, a T square type of song isn't a tinkly wind chime. It's it's obviously something a little bit more. You know, it's the bassoons at the back of the orchestra, or sort of big roar, um, uh, or it's something coming alive, perhaps for the first time. T square material sometimes lies dormant because we're too afraid to do something with it. Um, it depends on what. You know, if you've been allowed to be boisterous as a child, you know, you've got Mars at the apex of a T-square. If you've been allowed to be boisterous as a child, fantastic. If you haven't, you end up having, say, a Uranus transit to that Mars apex, you know, light blue touch paper and stand well back. Um, you know, it's, it's yeah, there's no formula really for it, it describing these things. Um, you, you have to just connect to what you see. Mm -hmm. You connect to what you see. Yeah, um, and it's it's something that sequence of the planets getting activated at the same time. Um, it's something that a person's going to experience on different levels and just have repeated um, experiences of having that activated on different levels throughout their entire life. Because, um, for example, once a month uh, when the moon moves around the chart, it's going to, for example, hit that T square. And ask and activate that aspect pattern um, once a month, and Mercury will do the same, or the Sun will do the same once a year, and Venus somewhat similar, and then Mars will do the same thing every two and a half years, and Jupiter every twelve years, and Saturn over the course of thirty years will aspect that that pattern in the same way. Um, yeah. So that's probably also connected in terms of that. Um, music or sound analogy, just in terms of the order in which the notes are hit, um, but also the duration of at what points in your life are those notes going to be hit, and how long of a duration is it? Since a moon transit will be much quicker than a Saturn transit, let's say. Yes, absolutely. And of course, the moon sees everything or, or brings everything to us through the lens of um, the unconscious, uh, through habit. Uh, through knee-jerk response to the world around us. So you can see that in that continual circuiting once every month, um, uh, it becomes our 
our response according to the T-square, our sense of that's how the world is and that's how I have to be in the world becomes reinforced again and again. And it's reinforced, as you say, through Mercury, through the sun, through Venus, through Mars. Um, it's, uh, we're, we're, we're in situations where we have to respond through our T-square, um, uh, almost every day, of, well, every, every day of the week, every week of the year. Um, so it's not just these bigger transits that happen sort of once in a lifetime, um, that are going to bring that T-square alive. It's a continual sense of, uh, it, it's continually being activated. So it really is embedded as part of our makeup and our sense of how the world is and, yeah, how we're expected to respond in a given set of circumstances. Right. Um, so that's that's our first aspect pattern. That's the T square. Um, that is, uh, there's a second aspect pattern that is very similar to that, which would be the grand square, which would be um, basically the same thing, but when you add one more additional point on the other side of on the op- opposition of the apex, so that you have. Two planets in opposition, and they're they're overlapping. Um, yes, that's right. So essentially, a, a, a grand cross. Yeah, is just exactly as you would expect it to be. It's it's uh, two oppositions, and then each of those planets, those four planets, is connected to each other by squares. Let me see if I have an image I can share. It looks like I don't have an individual one, um, but from. The page of your book. Let me see if I can just zoom in here. There we go. All right. So, there's so the unlike path. the T square, um, where you've got the energy funneled, it's dynamic because um, because the, there's a sense of movement. The person feels a sense of movement, um, and it gives the possibility, uh, as you were talking about before, for some kind of resolution. Um, and a sense of satisfaction before you sort of set off again on uh, uh, an, another set of goals or things to be discovered or done. Mm-hmm. Um, with the Grand Cross, there's uh, it's a much more um, it's a much more closed circuit kind of pattern. There isn't anywhere for the energy to go, so it's quite high octane, but it's also quite high uh, intensity and pressure. I think um, felt from the inside. Uh, there's no outlet, in other words. So it perhaps feels to the person as though they're in a kind of pressure cooker state. Mm. Um, and that might be particularly so for, uh, for a fixed T-square. Um, and there might be a sense that, you know, there's no way out. You feel as though there's no way out. You're always in this state of tension. And I think, you know, with all of our charts that, you know, anything that you, that you have, and there's always good stuff and there's always stuff that's, um, uh, that that is challenging to us. Um, if we do this conscious piece of magic, if we actually uh, try to find activities and ways of being in the world, things that we can embrace, things that we can uh, do, which consciously use the energy instead of um, uh, unconsciously letting it dominate, then uh, we do something very creative I think it's when we're not consciously aware of a particular uh, habit pattern or a particular behavioural response that um, that it can be um, that it, it can turn self-destructive. But this is a ve- the, t- the Grand Cross is a very very dynamic pattern. Um, and again, you have the idea of the uh, cardinal, the fixed, or the mutable, um, and that really is a sense of constant motion. 
um, I think, really as a sense of constant motion. Yeah, I like that because it integrates the um, and helps you to understand also the idea of looking at a at a chart and getting a sense of if there's a preponderance of placements in um, certain zodiacal qualities that are dominating the chart, such as um, a preponderance in uh, either by element like earth, air, fire, or water, or by modality or quadruplicity, which is Absolutely. cardinal, fixed, or mutable. So if you have a Grand cross, then right away you're you're probably going to have a preponderance of energy in one specific modality of cardinal fixed or mutable, which is immediately going to tell you something important about the chart or important about the person's life. Absolutely, yes. I mean, in in looking at a chart, the pre- preparation that I would do before a client, before seeing a client, um, element and mode balance and polarity balance too. Are the first things that I look at because I want to get some sense of the person's temperament, the sort of uh, the weave of them, the warp and the weft, the weave of them. Um, but absolutely right. So if you've got a grand cross, then you're going to have poss- probably going to have a lot of a particular modality. I've strewn. I've got lots of charts strewn about here. I've got the chart here of Thor Heyerdahl, um, which is one that fascinates me. Um, and I don't know if people, if you know who Thor Heyerdahl was, Thor Heyerdahl, I suppose I should say, he was a Norwegian explorer, um, ethnographer and explorer. And um, he was the one. Is his chart in Astrid, or Astro, uh, uh, can you spell be, the last name? It should be. What, what's, how do you spell the last name again? Um, H-E-Y-E-R-D-A-H-L, Heyerdahl, or Heyerdahl. Um, for some, I don't have it in my current file. Would you mind um, giving me the data? What was sure, his first name again? Um, T H O R, like the thunder god. Okay. Um, and, and sorry, what was the last name again? H E Y. Okay. E R. D H. Sorry, D A H L. Okay, and birth date. Sixth of October. Okay. 1914. What time? 4.40 p.m. Where? In Larvik, L-A-R-V-I-K, in Norway. B-I-K? V, V for Victor. Okay. And, and sorry, Norway, okay. Yeah. Um, and is it? Supposed to be late Aquarius rising. Yes, that's right. Okay, let me share the chart. Okay, there we go. So you can see a grand cross, a fixed grand cross, uh, with the moon in Taurus, and the third opposite uh, Mercury Mars conjunction in Scorpio in the ninth. And then there's another opposition between Jupiter Uranus in Aquarius in the twelfth, opposite Neptune in Leo in the sixth. Okay. And so, Got it. yeah. So a fixed Grand Cross. A fixed Grand Cross, and just to let you know a little bit about him, he, uh, yeah, he was an explorer. He was, um, his his big idea, his idea was that, um, and there isn't there is provenance for it um, in the scholarship. Uh, was that uh, the f- the first idea anyway? Was that uh, the people from 
the coast of South America had um, had sailed off into westwards um, into the Pacific and had um, in a balsa wood raft in balsa wood rafts and he and they had arrived at the Polynesian islands um, because he noticed that the myths of South America some of the myths accorded with the myths of Polynesia um, particularly the sun god um, this and who is called Contiki. So he made this balsa wood raft, this traditional boat. They made it in, they went to Peru and he went there with a crew. They made a uh, balsa wood raft and they sailed off into the Pacific. Um, thousands of miles on this balsa wood raft. There was about 12 men or something on this balsa wood raft. So it was this, um, high drama, um, mission, this, this sort of, uh, flinging yourself into the complete unknown. Um, this death-defying journey out into the Pacific. I mean, they could have lost their lives at any stage. And he was the captain of the of the ship. Interestingly, there's no fire in his chart. Mm. He has not a stitch of fire. Um, but he has this grand cross, this fixed grand cross, with the Mars and the Mercury in the ninth house. It's a kind of fiery house. And there's so much grit and determination in that story. Um, they made it to the South Seas. The Bolsawood raft broke up just as they were reaching to land. Um, so they survived the journey, but you can see how that, that's, that's a, an approach that somebody with a grand cross might have to life, which is you bite off something that's more than you can chew. Um, and then you just go ahead and chew it anyway. And you make something out of it. And this is a fixed grand cross. So there's the sense of, uh, even before you even look at the planets, there's just this sense of, of incredible resilience and, um, uh, uh, survival against all the odds. So, so I think, you know, he really used that Grand Cross. He, and he went on lots of other expeditions, um, across the world on any one of which he could have lost his life very easily. So he learned about leadership and he learned about survival. Um, and it, it was the making of him really. Um, he had a lot of trouble on other levels, on a personal level with his wife back home and his children, which you know, obviously they were left at home, but um, quite an extraordinary life. And he wrote a, he wrote a, a book on this called The Contiki Expedition. Um, kind of shows my age. It was a, a hugely uh, popular book um, in the 1970s um, when I was, uh, yeah, when I was young. So, it, but it demonstrated that it was possible and that they, people could have sailed that far through the Pacific in order, and, and that could have then demonstrated how that happened. Absolutely, everybody said, mm. "You know, you're 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 a fool. You're mad. You'll die on the way." And of mm. course, with somebody somebody who's got a grand cross, that's kind of red rag to a bull. Yeah, especially a fixed grand cross. So that's a really good example of like the determination and and conviction and and um, willingness to see the course through to completion, no matter what the odds are, um, which might be more. Likely, if you have um, such a preponderance of planets in fixed signs, um, I think so. Yes, I think so, and and that's a life choice. Um, you know, it's a it's a, it's a choice to to take on something of that magnitude. And you could say that perhaps you know, if this was somebody who was just uh, sitting at home, hadn't kind of found their their motivation. That uh, that's when that that's when the Grand Cross energy starts to become problematic. Um, when you're out on the high seas, you know, battling the winds and battling starvation and the loss of you know 
death at any minute, that's when you come into your own. A sort of grand cross person really comes into their own. Um, hmm. You obviously don't have to go out on the high seas to get that kick, but um, it's it's there's a sense of yeah, the endurance thing, doing something which allows you to develop that sense of endurance, and then you're changed forever by that experience. Right. Yeah, that is a really great example. Um, so, let's see. Is there anything else about Grand Crosses that are unique, um, in addition to being an extension of the sort of T square and, and a more um, because of those two oppositions, a much more intense sort of version of that, especially since it doesn't have the sort of pressure release valve that the T square has where it has that apex planet that's sort of allowing for an outlet for the opposition with the grand cross instead you just get um, a sort of continuation of it with no necessarily no specific outlet per se um yes i think so i think so and it it's that uh, paradoxically it's that very thing which creates the sense of dynamism hmm. um, in it that you're constantly in a state of motion or constantly in a state of action or readiness, or um, yeah. But again, you know, going back to this idea of uh, how things might have seemed to the child, to a child, um, you can see how it would be very easy for that person to identify in the world around them a sense of that everything is in a in a state of high tension. And um, clients that I've uh, seen in the past with grand crosses, they don't come up very often, but when they do. Um, you very often get a childhood story of great uh, uh, psychological complexity. Um, depend, I mean, it depends partly on the planets involved, but a great psychological complexity in the family of origin, um, mm. and and a, or, and a sense that that one has come from this very complex background, where perhaps the child felt it was their task to try and bring together. Um, Different warring factions, or uh, try and resolve something, but there's always that sense that you haven't resolved it. So I think you know it, it can be incredibly dynamic, but it can also feel for the person as though something has been left undone or unprocessed or unresolved. Mm. I'm I'm thinking of a question. I'm searching through my files for other examples of uh, T squares or, or grand crosses, and um, one of the questions I realized that some Listeners or some new students may have is whether, in your opinion, or how you use this technique, um, if it has to only involve planets, or can other points in a chart act as one of the legs of a, a grand cross? So, for example, the ascendant or uh, the nodes, whether they can be used as part of that to fill out the aspect pattern, in, in your opinion? Um, no, not not in my view. Okay. I mean, what you get, of course, is uh, if you've got, say, Mars square to the nodal axis, um, it still produces a sense of tension, and that Mars mm -hmm. is somehow a pivot point in the story of the nodal axis, but it isn't a T-square. And it isn't a T-square because the nodes are not, um, they're not psychological drives in the same way as the planets are. So it's not creating that sense of a um, uh, of a of a dynamic of a, a psychological personality dynamic, 
Um, it's saying something very important about uh, the role of Mars in the overall life story mm. of, of that person, but it's not, I wouldn't call it a T-square. Um, so for me, there have to be uh, planets at each of the legs, at each of the points for any, for any aspect pattern. Okay. Um, I'm looking at um, I'd been doing some like research on World War II and like the use of astrology in World War II. And one of the interesting charts I had been working with was Rudolf Hess, um, who has definitely at least a T-square between Mercury at, at 13 Aries, opposing Saturn at 20 Libra, and squaring the Moon at 16 Capricorn. But then there was just I had a little question about whether we would treat this as a Grand Cross, since his ascendant was sort of at the other side of that, at seventeen degrees of Cancer. I personally wouldn't. Um, mm -hmm. I would treat that as a T square, but of course, it is still bringing in the ascendant. But I would, I still think it would have the quality of um, the Moon being the apex planet. So there's a very strong pull there. And of course, the Moon is the ruler of the chart; it's ruling the ascendant. Mm -hmm. So there's a very strong pull over towards relationships. So. Uh, I would imagine that he would identify relationship as the point of resolution, as the place to go to, um, in order to resolve the tension between the uh, the opposition. Right, which is and that tension and the opposition is between Mercury in the tenth house and Saturn in the fourth house of like the mm -hmm. parents, and of course he famously, unfortunately, like the the way that he tried to resolve that in terms of relationships was. With you know having relatively close working relationship or partnership with Adolf Hitler, so that might be like not one of the best resolutions of like relationship seventh house dynamics in history. Um, well, it probably worked for them. Sure, I mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's very difficult to talk about it as an outs you know as an outsider to that, but sure. you know you can say that there's yeah there's a need for relationship. There's a need and. Cancer rising is, uh, you know, needs family, needs connection and uh, tribe. And the person that you identify as being able to bring you into that tribe, perhaps, is the person that you're having a relationship with. And of course, the seventh house and the descendant are not just about romantic relationships; it's about the sense of other. So, so there's a sense, perhaps, of uh, wanting to 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 uh, to nurture others. That moon in Capricorn on the descendant wanting to nurture others um, and be nurtured in return. So that's a very powerful dynamic there. Um, I would yeah. expect him to be pulled into relationship all the time and for that to be the crucible, really. Um, and you can think with the, the, the opposition between Mercury and Saturn, you're talking about the parents. And I was thinking about the parental relationship being potentially described by the moon on the descendant. There's something quite powerful there about family, about the parents' relationship as being somehow seminal to his experience. I don't I confess I don't really know anything I don't know anything about his history. Certainly don't don't know anything about his childhood. Um, yeah, I don't I don't know much about his childhood. I mean the Saturn and the fourth and a does make me wonder about like um seeking having like a stern father or seeking the approval of the father and if that wasn't something Sort of dynamic that he wasn't playing out later in life. Um, some of the things you're talking about in terms of seeking partnership, having the ruler of the ascendant there, and having that be the apex 
of the T square was making me. Th- he, um, when Hitler and um, Hess were arrested and thrown in prison for trying to uh, make a coup in the 1920s, um, Hess ended up helping, partnering up with Hitler and helping him write Mein Kampf. So that was like his seventh house stuff playing out. But then eventually, uh, the Nazis ruled, rose to power, and Hess was like the second in command. But then eventually, later during the war, got sidelined, and then he did this crazy stunt where he like flew to the UK in order to event attempt to broker a peace deal, but ended up just getting thrown in jail. And then Hitler was very upset by this, and somehow astrology was in play, where Hess may have done that partially based on some astrological advice, and then the Nazis rounded up all of the astrologers and threw them in concentration camps at that point. So that's that's actually an episode I've been researching recently that I hope to do at some point in the future. Um, anyway, not to get too focused on that or to draw us back to our previous chart pattern, but- um, But I think it's just interesting that um, you know, we look at people's biographies and think, mm-hmm. you know, they've always been an adult because, you know, that's you think about the things that they did when they were an adult, but wind that right. back and you start to see some of the underpinning of it. I mean, that's classic psychology, of course, isn't it? But um, you know, there's a story there about the parents and mediating between the parents or yeah, trying to find some kind of resolution to that. Yeah, especially when you see like Saturn angular in one of the angular houses. Um because you're right, and especially when a person is younger and they have, let's say, a heavy seventh house transit, like after he was born, you know, when he was about, let's say, seven years old, we know that Saturn would have transited into his seventh house and would have transited over his moon um, as that apex planet. And that's probably not him necessarily forming relationships, but instead, probably some early experience of his parents' relationship or marriage at that time. And Tensions there that then left an impression on him. Um, yes, it's. I mean, it's entirely possible. It's entirely possible. Any time the moon is involved um, in any configuration, um, it's the the, the ex- what we experience in the world around us. You know, he would have experienced this T square. He would have experienced it um, on a physical level, um, mm. and he would have identified it in the people around him, in the dynamics around him. And any time that the moon is involved, it's uh, it goes in under the radar. We're not conscious of it, so it embeds itself in the physical, in it becomes psychosomatic. And, yeah. Right. Absolutely. Okay. Um, so that's the uh, Grand Cross. Uh, one of the other ones that's similar to that would be the rectangle pattern, or would that be the next one, the the mystic rectangle, or where do you usually go from here? Um, well, there are different ways that you can look at it. So um, we can stay with yes. I mean, we can look at the uh, at the we can look at the hard rectangle, mm. for instance, which is um, based on hard aspects. And then flip over to the mystic rectangle. Those two two sort of that they have they have a similar dynamic, a similar sort of where well, they're a similar pattern, but just uh, different aspects involved. We can okay. look at that as a pairing, as it were. Um, we can also do the grand trine if you wanted to move on to something completely different. Uh, it's, yeah. it's totally up to you. Yeah, let's do the grand trine. Okay, yeah, let's do that. That'll get us into a different, a much different headspace in terms of what we're seeing specifically and what kind of aspects are involved. 
compared to the other ones. So a grand trine occurs when you have um, not just two planets that are in a trine, which is a 120 degree aspect, but you have the two planets that are closely in a trine, and then there's a third planet that is forming a trine to both of them as well, so that it creates mm -hmm. a big triangle across the chart. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So it's resonating. The whole pattern resonates to the number three, mm. um, which the Pythagoreans amongst you will know is the number of ease and harmony, reconciliation, mediation. Um, and that's really the key to that aspect pattern. Um, it tends to be, you know, these are pla these will be planets that typically will be linked by element. So you have fire or earth or air or water, grand trine. And when they are like that, you know, we get this deep reservoir, um, often unconscious, not, not something we necessarily describe ourselves as. We describe ourselves as our T-squares. You know, what's Carol like? She's like a T-square. That's how I would describe myself. Mm. Um, it would take me some way down the conversation to get to my grand trine and, and talk about that. But, uh, it's there as a kind of deep reservoir of uh, skill, of talent, of feeling, of uh, dynamic of action, which uh, which we take for granted in ourselves often. And we don't tend to feel motivated. Typically, we don't tend to feel motivated to develop, develop that side of us. But it's, you know, it's, it's there as, yeah, it's just a natural part of who we are. We don't question it. We tend not to question it. That's a good point. So hard aspects. Um tend to provoke more obvious or tangible things because sometimes they're an area of tension or sometimes discomfort, so it's more obvious, whereas trines and easy aspects can sometimes be things that aren't as obvious because we're taking them for granted and, and they're not as prominent in our lives, at least in terms of our perception of them, even though maybe somebody else from the outside could look at that and say that's something you have going in your favor, perhaps? Um, yes, I think that's often the case. You have to remind a person with a grand trine that they have this um, this set of skills, this set of talents. Uh, it is often, I think, something that we take for granted. Um, we don't tend to push ourselves to, to develop that. But, you know, grand trine in water might suggest, again, you know, depending on the planets, but might suggest a, a sort of natural musicality or a a uh, natural sense of empathy and it's not something you know it's just something that the person would you know not not something they would necessarily carve a career out of or push themselves to you know become the best uh, violinist the world has ever known um but it it would be something that just sits there we often we want to enjoy those aspects of ourselves that the grand the things that are uh, described by the grand trine so it's a place of indulgence or a place of um yeah, we identify the things that we enjoy, and that gives us a sense of release. And I think that's important um, because, of course, you can't spend the whole of the time, even if you've got a grand cross, it's very difficult to spend all of your time, you know, out on the high seas trying to look for um, uh, Polynesian islands. You still need to have some sense of, you know, we use our trines, never mind a grand trine, we use our trines to, um, to engage with the things that we find easy, that flow. Um, that we don't have to question in ourselves natural talents, and that's a big picture um, when it comes to the to a, a chart with the grand trine in it. Yeah, I like that. I'm looking through some of my 
example charts really quickly as I'm hearing some of your keywords and I'm finding some musicians, some like talented musicians like um, uh, like Billy Corgan and and Kurt Cobain of Nirvana from the early '90s, both had mm-hmm. grand trines in water. So Kurt Cobain is Jupiter at 25 degrees of Cancer, trine Neptune at 24 Scorpio, trine uh, Chiron, Venus, and Saturn, which are all conjunct between 24 and 28 degrees of Pisces. So creating a big water grand trine there and. Um, Billy Corrigan was born within like a week or two, or within a few weeks of him. So he has a very similar grand trine. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think yeah. Cobain's chart. I mean, it's so interesting. Um, you know, I have no. I don't. I don't assume that Kurt Cobain knew any astrology, but just the idea of Nirvana for all that Pisces and mm. uh, what's the album? Nevermind. <laughs> right. So Pisces, <laughs> whatever. I mean, he um, knew a little. He knew a little astrology. Unfortunately, he? he had the most okay. in terms of like astrology trivia. He had the most famous offhand reference to astrology in a suicide note, where he referred to himself as a sad little Pisces, uh, okay. which I always thought was a really striking um, example of that. Just given that he had a Pisces stellium, but um, one of the planets or two of the planets involved were Chiron and, and Saturn. Yeah. 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 I mean, again, you know, just, yeah, absolutely. This natural sense of um, empathy, feeling, um, absorbing atmosphere, the grand trine in water, absorbing atmosphere and being very impressionable. Um, and that's a gift for a musician. Um, of course, it's a little more difficult um, in the rough and tumble of life. But um, just extending this conversation out towards uh, the kite pattern. Of course, he has a kite. Yes. So that grand that trine is... is the part of the bigger pattern of the kite with um, the Pluto Uranus at the apex in Virgo, um, right there on the ascendant. And um, I don't know a great deal about Kirk Bain, but um, he's, they say that he was incredibly, um, that he was actually quite dictatorial in terms of how he wanted, you know, the, the sound that he wanted. He was very, very hardworking. Knew exactly what he wanted. Mm-hmm. So, in a way, there you see you see the beauty of the kite pattern, which is picking up all of that um, uh, sensitivity and feeling, and and uh, making something of it, crafting it into something through those Virgo planets. Yeah, that's a um, holding the reins, actually- and that's the apex planet in a kite. It holds the reins. Pause, pause the the natural well of talent and feeling from the grand trine into something practical or useful or um, busy. Yeah, and that makes me think of um, the other example, which is very similar. It was Billy Corrigan of the Smashing Pumpkins. You using yeah. that keyword of um, dictatorial, where he has a similar um, grand trine, but it turns into a kite because of uh, Pluto. Uranus and the degree of the ascendant all conjunct between 19 and 24 Virgo. And he famously, on one of the most famous albums of the Smashing Pumpkins, when they were recording it, he ended up um, being so unhappy with his other bandmates, the way they were playing or how well they were playing, that on the final recording, he went back and recorded all of the different musical instruments himself. So he did the drums himself and he did the, all the other instruments himself so that the final tracks really largely just represent him recording everything instead of the band 
in and of itself. Yeah. So just in terms of your your keywords there, I like that and how that mm-hmm. fit in in a very similar chart um, to Kurt Cobain's. So um, did you have, and it's interesting because you pointed out, um, so in both instances, we're talking about an emphasis then on water sign placements. And that's one of the things that a grand trine is going to do is it's going to automatically give you a much heavier emphasis on whatever that element is and whatever the nature of the element is, and therefore that being a dominant sort of archetypal trait, either psychologically or in terms of how the life works out in general? Um, uh, yes, absolutely. Yes. Uh, it's, I mean, if we're talking about the kite pattern, um, mm-hmm. we've, uh, we've got, we've got, sen- we've got a sense of dynamic movement or a sense of, um, uh, taking, taking the, 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 uh, taking what's taken for granted, but not taking it for granted and giving it some kind of, um, uh, it's, it, it's given some kind of, uh, purpose it has to be given some kind of purpose. Um, and you can imagine both of those musicians in the act of playing music or in the act of singing in the act of being the front man of the band or, or, uh, you know, they're, they're playing to the strengths of those kites because, um, they're, they're, with the grand trine, you get in the zone. You know the idea of being lifted out of yourself. Mm. Um, we see, we see, uh, we see that sense of the nirvana that comes through um, the ninth harmonic and the number nine. Um, and in a way, we have a resonance of that with three trines around the chart. So we have three, three, and three. Mm. Um, a, a resonance of that. So we have this idea of a of a kind of in the grand trine itself is this sense of a nirvana of wanting to achieve this state of a complete release or complete, and particularly in water there, complete release or completely being sort of taken up into a transcendental experience. And Neptune is involved there as well and Pisces. Um, but it, with the Virgo, um, apex, it has to have some kind of purpose. It has to have some kind of, uh, worldly purpose or you can imagine the, the technique, the craft, the, uh, knowing how to play, how to sing, the music gives it a, a, it's a crucible or it's a it's a container for it. Sure. So it makes it concrete because it introduces both a hard aspect, um, but it also introduces a, a planet that is the apex that is in a completely different element than the other three planets that are involved in the grand trine itself. Yeah, um, precisely and, so. And so just to define that so that really quickly, because I don't remember if we did, but a a kite pattern is a grand trine where on one side of the grand trine there is a fourth planet which is sextile to two of the planets that's in the grand trine and then by by definition or by nature of that the planet that's sextile the fourth planet that is sextile the two is also opposing the third planet so it creates this opposition between one of the planets in the grand trine yeah that's right so it has Got a kind it. of backbone. Um, if you think about actually flying a kite, get that's when it catches the wind and it actually flies in a particular direction. But up up until that point, and the, the wind flows along the backbone of it, but up until that point, it's just sort of flapping about and you can't get it to get to be airborne. Mm. 
Yeah, that's one of the sometimes criticisms I hear occasionally that modern astrologers make of grand trines that they can be because it's it's easy or because it represents a point of ease in the life that it's not always used to the fullest extent or taken advantage of in some way because it's um just something as you said earlier that's taken for granted. Yeah, absolutely. There's that possibility. Also um there's the possibility of too much of it. You know, there's no self-editing, there's no checking. Mm. Um, I'm thinking of, don't want to go on about grand trines in water because there are other ones to think about also. But, you know, there's an excess of feeling can be, you know, and because it operates often at a slightly on, or often at an unconscious level, um, it's, there's the sense of being, um, swept up in one's feelings and overwhelmed by them and unable to check them. So, you know, and again, if you can find a way of harnessing that, which of course those as musicians, those both of those people did, that brings a sense of maybe satisfaction or bringing you back down to earth or or whatever. But I imagine that there are times when it's possible to feel completely overwhelmed um, by one's feelings and to lose a sense of perspective. Once you've started to get lots of water in a chart, and if it edges out the air and the earth, um, in uh, particularly the air, you get that sense of not being able to stand back from your situation and reflect on it or gain a sense of perspective. It feels swamped. right. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. um, okay, so that's the kite pattern and the grand trine. Um, I know we're getting towards the end of this, so maybe we should uh, just quickly touch upon some of the other more unique or elaborate chart patterns. I know one that people ask about very frequently um, is the Yod or the finger of fate or finger of God pattern. Mm -hmm. So that's when you have two planets in sextile, which is the 60 degree aspect, and then both of those planets are simultaneously um, in a, a quincunx or sometimes called an inconjunct uh, with the two planets in sextile so that it it creates an apex or a focal point. That's right. Yes, yes. Um, so the sextile. We know that the sextile um, has a sense of uh, it. It brings together two planets that we know can work together, and there's a sense of enjoyment at using that energy, um, and a sense of busyness. Um, but they are the the apex. They're um, throwing two quincunxes to the apex planet. So the task there, the challenge for the person is to try and find a way of using the energy that's bound up. The, the, the sextiles aren't dynamic in the way that a square is. It's not about work necessarily, but it's about, um, uh, a sense of wanting to, to, to do something, um, or to, to use a talent. Um, and to enjoy doing it, but to put some work into, into doing that. And it, it's trying to find its outlet through the apex planet, but it's thwarted in a way because, um, because of the, the queen, the quincunxes and the quincunxes tend to, um, there's a sense of not being aware of something, um, having to become conscious of something before you can start to really use that energy. And it's very often at the, a transit to the apex. Of a quick of a yod that we uh, it, it starts to come alive and the threads start to be pulled together. So it's like the the set the planets in sextile are waiting for something to happen 
and it's very often a transit or a progression or a direction. But um, we want to put them into. We know that we there's a. We know we want to put them into the energy of that into something, um, but we can't find exactly what that thing should be. We can't define it. The opportunity doesn't come along, or we miss the opportunity. We don't recognise it when it does come, or we get in our own way, or we sort of self sabotage. Um, and that can be a, a negative pattern for a while. Yeah, mm. it can be a negative pattern. But it can be also, I mean, like all these things, it can be also very creative. It's, again, like everything, it's about really becoming aware of one's own behavior patterns. Sure. Yeah, and the, the yod is a, a weird one because when it's activated by transits, it can often be strange because of how Different the aspects are that it'll make to different planets um, when it when it does make an exact aspect. So um, I'm trying to think of of an example where it'll be like squaring one of the planets, but it'll be forming like a trine or a sextile to another leg of the the yacht or something like that. Yeah. Yes, I mean they're more difficult to spot in your transit sheets. It's not as obvious, obviously, as a planet going over the apex. But yeah, right. you, you know these these things these things do have an effect. They do mm. have an effect. Um, and do you use a closer orb for yods for identifying the apex planet because it's a minor aspect, or what kind of yeah. orb do you use? I tend to use four degrees for a sextile, and then two degrees for the quincunx. Okay. Yeah. Got it. And you know, there's this whole thing: is it a minor aspect or is it not a minor aspect? Of course, Karen Hammacher Sontag would say it's definitely not a minor aspect. Um, the faculty teaches that it is, but I think, in a way, it's you know, it's it's of itself. It isn't perhaps. Uh, it, I don't think it's minor in the sense of being inconsequential, and particularly mm. if you've got a yod pattern, um, that's quite a, that's quite life forming. It's quite life-forming. I'm thinking of the chart of Oscar Wilde, the Irish writer Oscar Wilde, uh, with two yods in the chart. And there's just that sense of things not quite lining up or misfiring or, you know, things don't quite come together. Um, and a sense of perhaps dissatisfaction until a particular thing happens and then, and then, then it does come together. Um, let me pull up his chart. So... Where are the yods in his chart? I don't. For, it's not like showing the in conjunct or the quincunx here. Okay, so he's got um, a sextile between Saturn on the midheaven and the Moon in Leo. Okay, so at fifteen uh, Gemini, Saturn to fifteen Leo Moon. That's right, and the they the apex then is yeah, it's the Chiron, and pulling in the Jupiter also. Um, there in the fifth house. Okay, so Chiron's at sixteen Capricorn and Jupiter's at nineteen Capricorn. Yes, that's um, right. And how did that work work out for him? Um, if you put his chart into equal house, oh, yeah, um, that moon that. goes into the eleventh. I'm not saying that you need to do that now, but um, the way that I would read it, the way that I have read it in the past, you know, here was somebody who um, who thrived on an audience. Hmm. Um, he played to the crowd. He had a very strong sense of drama and uh, pageant and appearance and um, uh, had lots of friends and was very sociable and very connected to the 
the theatrical community and the literary and dramatic communities. And perhaps that was a place where he felt comfortable. Mm-hmm. Um, but also at the same time, there's a sense of with the Saturn on the Midheaven there, um, a sense of being wanting to be taken very seriously as a writer. Um, he knew he had this talent. Um, it brought his writing and his drama brought together um, the best of those two planets in sextile. Um, so, you know, I'm just think, trying to think of some of the lines that he wrote. You know, um, if you know his plays, there's a, a sense of humor, huge sense of humor, but they're also incredibly serious. Um, mm. He was challenging the, uh, the, 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 um, the morality of his day, the, uh, the class system, um, the ways in which people behaved. Um, but he was, he was somebody who was very, uh, very much a, a professional and public person. The, the yods, the, um, the apex of that yod being the Chiron and the Jupiter there. Mm. Um, you know, in a way, perhaps that when you have Chiron in the fifth house conjunct to Jupiter, Chiron just on its own in the fifth. Chiron is the place where we need, where we, uh, something doesn't quite go right. Um, or we're in a place where we feel we have to try and work to find our sense of belonging. We feel perhaps as though we're outside of the system in some way. And one of the ways that you could perhaps read that, Yod, is that that's perhaps what he was searching for, a sense of legitimacy, a sense of, but also wanting to be the maverick. Because that was, of course, his talent. Um, he said the thing that nobody else dared to say. You know, it's like the jester speaking truth to power. Um, he used his, he used his plays as, his, as devices to lampoon the upper classes. Um, so he's trying to find a place within and to be taken seriously in that community, but at the same time recognizing himself as being an outsider, perhaps. And I, I think there's something there about uh, uh the 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 t- one of the tasks might be to accept or find a way of reconciling that outsider quality or that maverick tendency um that sort of daring pushing the boundaries saying just the thing that's taboo and knowing the effect that you're going to have um uh and of course you risk losing everything um when you do that but he he is kind of walking a tightrope I think he did it very well, and certainly in his drama, he did it very well. Mm. And so, he ha- and you said he had two yards in his chart, right? Yes. Um, see if I can remember. I've got it. Got the chart somewhere here. I don't want to here. shuffle papers to find it. I was trying to change the aspects to put the quincunx uh, in, and I actually changed or messed up the display. But here's the. Oh, actually, yeah. Let me see. The displayed points. There we go. Um, that's sort of showing it. Now it's starting to show some of the inconjuncts. Okay. Ah, yes. Now the other one is um, Chiron to Neptune. That's the sextile, mm-hmm. um, depending on your orbs. But Chiron to, sex, to, to Neptune, sextile, and then two quincunxes to the moon. So the moon is also an apex planet. Nice. Okay. So it picks oh, up I'm... some of the same energy, but it, it, um, it's, it's the moon that's also under a, a under some pressure or a sense of uh, discomfort, trying to find a way to express itself in a way that feels natural or, you know, we're, we're, 
quincunxes, I think, uh, put us on the edge of our seat or they are, there's a sense of friction or discomfort. Mm. Um, we're trying to find our way. Um, so perhaps here's somebody who wanted people to love him, uh, was reaching out to an audience to try and find that sense of belonging and, and, uh, warmth. Um, and worked very hard to to try and create that. So, so that's the finger portion. Is the apex planet in a yacht? Is the is the supposed like finger of God or or what have you? Yeah, that's right. So the the moon here at fifteen degrees of Leo. That's the apex of a yacht, as well as being involved in this in the first yacht that we were just talking about. Okay, um, and I actually just noticed there's another one uh, from. Venus at seven degrees of Libra to Mars at three degrees of Sagittarius, which are in sextile, and then both of those are almost in conjunct, almost quincunx to Pluto at two degrees of Taurus. It's actually a little, it's a little wide. It's like five degrees with the in conjunct to Venus, but mm. almost there. Yes, um, I guess I wouldn't count that as a quincunx between Venus and Pluto. Mm, I mean, you okay. could make a case for it. Um, if it isn't, then what you've essentially got is Pluto with just one aspect to it, even if it just has the two. But if it doesn't, then Pluto just has one aspect to it, mm. um, which, as you say, is the quincunx to Mars right. um, from the eighth house Pluto. I mean, he was he pushed the boundaries in in what he, although his plays were, you know, supposed uh, supposed to be humorous, um, they were humorous. But he was obviously he danced. He sailed very close to the wind in a lot of the things that he said, and of mm. course he fell foul of the authority through the court case that he went through. Um, yeah, things unraveled. Um, and I've I've heard that, in at least in some books, that the the yacht is important, but that you can sometimes look to the degree opposing that uh, the opposing the apex planet as like a sensitive point or a point of resolution in some way. Because it's kind of like the midpoint between everything. If you're using midpoints, yeah, I think it's called a boomerang. I saw that written mm. once. So okay. it's the yod with the opposite. You say the opposition, so you get two semi-sextiles to this opposition. So you get a kind of um, uh, other apex, if you like. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I'm trying to think of a chart that I've come across that in. I think. Jane Fonda, I might be misremembering that. I might be misremembering that. She does, I'm sure, fairly sure she has a yod, mm-hmm. and the apex planet is conjunct the descendant. And I think it's Pluto. Um, uh, I'm not. I can't. I can't quite remember. It's a while since I worked with her chart. Here's the chart. Uh, yes. So it's- so, uh, so you're in whole sign. So we just have to tip up a bit. So we've got. Um, Pluto is the apex on the descendant, and then that's opposite Jupiter on the ascendant. And then we've got the Sun at 29 degrees of Sag, Sagittarius, mm-hmm. and Mars at 29 degrees of Aquarius. So yes, we've got a boomerang. What they call it, I think, what's what they call a boomerang. Nice. Let yeah. me let me change it to equal really quickly, just because that'll that'll really emphasize that. Um, much more with Jupiter right on the ascendant. So there we go. There we go. So yeah, and yeah. Uh, so twenty nine 
Sagittarius Sun, 29 Aquarius Mars, both of them quincunx to Pluto at 29 Cancer, and then Pluto's opposing Jupiter in the Ascendant, and Jupiter's at like very early zero degrees of Aquarius, so so practically at like 29. Mm. The image that that conjures for me is of an arrow being let loose um, mm. from a bow. I'm just thinking of the, you know, back in the 1970s when she was protesting against the Vietnam War. Mm. There's that famous picture of her sitting on the missile. And I just thought about that, thinking of this, this yod with the Jupiter, the, the idea of being motivated by this humanitarian cause. Mm. And being, um, you know, being able, taking on the might of the government, taking on the military, um, opposing that and using that Jupiter in Aquarius, that sense of humanity, common humanity as the fuel. Um, I mean, quite fearless in many ways. Right. And, and the, but the, and then also the pushback against that, the sort of tremendous, um, resilience it takes to go up against something like that. Absolutely, you know, Pluto is the apex of a of a yod. Um, if you take the action, um, you you risk um, you risk transforming a situation. Um, mm. In other words, you risk an alchemical change. So uh, the 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 fear there for the person might be uh, to mm. withdraw and not to uh, not to engage, not to risk anything. Um, so that you don't risk destroying something or or, or uh, changing a situation so irrevocably that you can't go back. So I think mm-hmm. it takes a, an, an enormous amount of courage to access that apex planet. Um, I think Pluto often takes an enormous amount of courage, whatever it's doing in a chart. We go into the depths. Um, we're taken into some kind of alchemical uh, change in that, and we're never the same again afterwards. Um, I don't know what the transits were at the time that she was doing this protest. I mean, obviously, quite a lot of her life was about, um, certainly her early life, uh, protesting and uh, being very, very quite cause driven, quite cause driven. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so, can't remember how yeah. many times she was married a number of times, and yeah, I, I can't remember about her. Sure, her life story. Um, so, uh, so this has actually been a really great and long discussion, but we're at two hours and fifteen minutes. So I think we might have to to wrap it up, even though I'm having a really good time, and we, even though we haven't covered every um, possible aspect configuration, because I don't want to keep you too long today. Um, but I'm trying to think of if there's anything that needs to be mentioned in terms of wrapping up just what we've covered so far in terms of aspect patterns or any. Points that we should have mentioned for somebody that's new to this topic that we we perhaps haven't. I think really just to bear in mind that um, an aspect pattern enacts itself. We experience it at all the different levels, and the key really to understanding it perhaps is to think laterally in terms of your interpretations. So we can think of it in terms of a behaviour pattern, but we can also think of it as the way in which we have envisaged our early life and the people around us. Um, If you think about the kind of professional situations that you've um, put yourself in, the kind of 
things that you're drawn towards, kind of situations you're drawn towards, um, are they places where you've been able to use that aspect pattern again and again? Because you're drawn to those situations so that you can work something out, so that you can use that pattern. Um, some of that might well be unconscious. Um, they, uh, they very often appear in relationships. Relationships that, you know, it doesn't have to involve the seventh house of Venus, as I've said before. Um, you can find those things, those aspect, your aspect patterns enacting themselves in, in the way that you relate to other people, because relationships are one of the primary ways in which we, um, work out who we are, um, and find our place in the world. So think about it on, on that, on that level as well. Um, yeah. It isn't just the grand stuff that we go through with the, with the aspect patterns too. It's also just the everydayness of life. Mm. Um, yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. I think that's a really great, um, great note to think about uh, sort of, to sort of wrap things up. So this is both something that's, they can be major overall statements about the life, but also because they're built into our chart in this way. There's something that we encounter and experience on a day-to-day basis, and it doesn't necessarily have to be this big sweeping thing about our overall life. And, and sometimes that's maybe even the danger of um, cer- focusing on certain aspect patterns too much, or some of the kind of high high sounding names given to some of them, like especially like the finger of God or finger of fate, which I think sometimes. Maybe oversells the yod a little bit too much. Um, <laughs> yes, it does. The mystic rectangle is it mystic? Right. Not really. <laughs> when it's just describing your way you go about doing relationships, or or mm-hmm. you know cleaning the house or not cleaning your your house or your flat, whatever um, mm-hmm. mundane manifestation that it ends up having in your life, since this relates very much to your day to day life as well as your overall. You know, destiny or fate in some broader sense. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, our, our lives are made with the washing up and the, you know the shopping and the daily acts of connection to people and phone calls and emails and all the sort of minutiae. That's that's where life is made. Perhaps that just that's- says something about my life, but uh, yeah, for most no. of us, I think that's 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 what makes us. Then our our aspect patterns are as much there. In a daily conversation, or in a uh, you know the way we go about weeding the garden, or 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 yeah, the kind of television programs we like to watch, the kind of novels we like to read, yeah, I think it's it's all there. Brilliant, I love that. That's a great great point um, to end on. Uh, all right, so you are you said earlier you're working on a book on aspect patterns, so we can expect to see that at some point in the future. It's a bit of a twinkle in my eye at the moment, rather than a sort of fully formed anything. Um, mm-hmm. But yes, yeah, I think that there are there are some books out there on aspects, but there's not a lot on aspect patterns. In fact, I don't think there's really anything. Um, but I do think that they're important. Um, I think they need to be tackled. Yeah. yeah, that would be great. I mean, you do so. You do have a treatment of this in your book. It's a few pages long, and it. Um, uh, covers not just the ones that we talked about today, but also gives some keywords for some of the other aspect patterns that we didn't get into. And um, the book itself is amazing. Who is the the publisher again? Dorling Kindersley. Okay, so that's DK DK Publishing DK. Yeah. for short. And 
Um, people can find that book pretty much anywhere. It's available on Amazon or Barnes and Noble. Um, it's actually relatively cheap, which is one of the other reasons why it's a great intro book. Because even though it's so thick and comprehensive, it's still relatively affordable. Mm-hmm. Um, so the title of the book is Astrology: Using the Wisdom of the Stars in Your Everyday Life. Um, and who do you happen to know who the illustrator was that you worked with for the book? Um, no, I never actually met. I think it's a, it was a, a woman, but I never actually met her. Um, okay, it was all mediated through the editor. Okay, yes, well they I'm did. I don't um, know. That's okay. They did an amazing job with that, and it really helps complement your your work or your text and everything that you you wrote for the book. Um, aside from the book, you also uh, you're working on a website right now that's going to be launched before too long. Oh yes, yes. It's about time I got my website up and running again. Um, so yes, it's uh, it'll launch within the next couple of months. Okay. Yeah. So that's caroltaylorastrology.com. Got it. Caroltaylorastrology.com. And then also you're still um, teaching at the Faculty of Astrological Studies. Yes, that's right. That's right. Um, I teach in the London classes. Which at the moment are online, of course, with the COVID nineteen situation. But we were going back into the London into London uh, at some point, hopefully over the next year. And I teach in the online classes and online seminars. I teach at the summer school. Um, I've got some, got a couple of online seminars coming up on Venus and Mars. If anyone is interested in uh, connecting to those, that's coming up this month. Um, and I'm doing a, a seminar on the shadow, the astrology of the shadow. Um, at Christmas, the, the annual Christmas lecture for the faculty will be on the shadow. Excellent. That sounds great. Um, so I think the faculty website is astrology.org.uk, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Great. All right. Well, um, I guess that's it for this episode. Thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Um, I've had a lovely time. Thank you so much. It's been wonderful to be talking to you. Yeah. All right. Uh, well, we'll have to have you on again at some point once your book or other future books come out. Um, but yeah, thanks for joining me. Thanks everyone for listening or watching this episode of the Astrology Podcast, and we'll see you again next time. Thanks to the patrons who helped to support the production of this episode of the Astrology Podcast through our page on Patreon.com. In particular, shout out to patrons Christine Stone, Nate Craddock, Marin Altman, Arena Tudor, Thomas Miller, Bear River. Catherine Conroy, Michelle Marillat, and Kate Pallotta, as well as the AstroGold Astrology app available at astrogold.io, the Portland School of Astrology at portlandastrology.org, and the Honeycomb Collective Personal Astrological Almanacs available at honeycomb.co. The production of this episode of the podcast was also supported by the International Society for Astrological Research which is hosting an online astrology conference September 12th and 13th, 2020. You can find out more information about that at isar2020.org. And finally, also Solar Fire Astrology Software, which is available at alabe.com, and you can use the promo code AP15 for a 15% discount on that software. For more information about how to become a patron of the Astrology Podcast and help support the production of future episodes, while getting access to subscriber benefits like early access to new episodes or other bonus content, go to patreon.com slash astrologypodcast.